Hello and welcome back to David and Callum's Any Requests. Absolutely, I think we're up to episode six of our Any Requests I think we are, yeah. now. Uh, and for the sixth episode, we're taking a, a slightly different turn, aren't we? We are, yeah. Um, this request is not a uh, single kind of piece of media or an episode or a film or even a piece of music. Um, it is much wider context. Um now, it's requested by someone um, we both know called Kevin Oliver-Jones. Uh, so thank you, Kevin, for this request. Absolutely. It is the densest, <laughs> uh, largest kind of broadest piece of material that we've had to kind of tackle. Um, yeah. So so normally, uh, you know, we, we always like to do a little bit of research around the films or TV programs that people yeah, are general geekery to do. Normally, that's like a couple of hours before we record. We've now been researching what Kev asked us to do for about three weeks, I think. This has been with yeah, us now. <laughs> I think someone somewhere should give us an MA or a PhD for this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting subject matter. Um, so Kev uh, is, a, is a big fan, I'm sure you might be saying, of conspiracy theories, largely because conspiracy theories have kind of developed a bit of a dirty kind of, uh, yeah. bit of a dirty word or a bit of a, they're not respected. People, yeah. you know, they imagine, you know, tin hats and UFOs and all that kind of thing. But rather um, than uh, just that, Kev's also quite interested in how information is handled and how the public narrative has changed. Yeah. And particularly... Um, in one of the most fascinating eras of, of all, uh, pretty much all decades, the 60s. Yeah. Um, and so we were invited to look at uh, a period of the 60s and the look look at the way in which the CIA and the, the American government during the 60s uh, developed certain programs that we are no longer privy to information uh you know, surrounding and looking at different kind of theories about events and world events, yes. specifically uh, operations MK Ultra, Operation Chaos, and how this links into uh, the Charles Manson murders. So when we said we've been spending three weeks on it, it's because yeah. we've had to understand what all of those things are <laughs> in great detail. Um, there are so many names in my head. There are so many names. You'll probably hear bits of paper flapping, flapping at certain points, especially uh, on my account. Um, I think uh, the best way of summing it up, as Kevin said on the bottom of his request, as rabbit holes go, this is quite an interesting one, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, abso- so, absolutely. And um, yeah, he's not wrong. It is, it wrong. is a deep and dark rabbit hole that we've both been uh, tumbling down for a good few weeks now. Yeah. Um, so just before we kind of start giving you a bit of contextual information um, and kind of laying out what we're going to talk about and the, the people and environments involved... Um, uh, just wanted to talk a little bit about kind of what our um, knowledge was of Charles Manson before that, and and also actually maybe talk a bit about kind of what our uh, what our thoughts are on conspiracy theories in general and things like that. I know for me, I've always uh, you know kind of as- ascribed to the uh, Occam's Razor mm-hmm. kind of. Uh, idea of of normally the most obvious answer is the correct one um yeah i I think we both also tend to go around the the idea that depend if it was more than a handful of people who had to keep a secret 
it yeah. probably didn't happen. Well, this is it. My thing, my thing has always been what you are trying to achieve has to has to like the co- covering up of the thing you're trying to cover up has to be bigger than the fallout yeah. of if the conspiracy was uncovered. That's why like 9 9/11 one I can't really get on board with massively. I think I think there's things to be talked about about how much knowledge they had of an attack coming, but I think it being an inside job I find really hard because one if it was it was quite bad because it was still a really convoluted way of getting into Iraq because you have well, to go via the war in Afghanistan. So it was, it was, it, it didn't <laughs> it fix an easy problem of them trying to get oil and trying to, George W. trying to, you know, uh, end his dad's war that he started two decades before. But also the bigger thing is I just think if it came out, it would destroy, you know, that's, that's the single kind of defining moment in American history of our mm-hmm. lifetimes. If that came out that, it was all done by the American government. Like America would be destroyed. Like the whole belief system of general Americans in their government would just be be over. Like, and why why would they risk that? It's about that thing, isn't it? If the outcome isn't worth that being, you know, worth worth the risk, then why bother? Yeah. I think actually, having done the research on this particular project, my view on on conspiracy theories have changed slightly. Um, and I'm not going to go too much into them because no. I think. I think uh, I'll let you go on on that journey with us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I I think it's important. We'll 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 get into the details later. But it is important to say that predominantly, maybe until some bits of speculative stuff towards the end that we're gonna have a bit of fun with. The majority of everything we're saying is completely factual and and is all based on stuff that has been uh, later declassified or or reported, stuff that, put into public domain. There's a great amount of evidence on. So actually. There's very little conspiracy about this. We're just presenting uh, evidence and factual information um, that when you kind of read it all together, does throw up some interesting questions. Um, So, so yeah, so, I mean, I didn't really spend much of my life thinking about Charles Manson. It's interesting, isn't it? I've always known that he's a huge uh, kind of cultural icon, Mm. and that's a really interesting way to describe someone who's responsible for murder. Yeah. Um, uh, But I think there is something... Man, you know, people can describe things as Manson esque, or yeah. hasn't. You know, there are there are tropes of the Manson family in a film or a yeah. book or a, a play, and I think that's really interesting, and it shows you how much of an impact the Manson murders in '69 had yeah. on on Western culture in general. Um, I was also aware of the book Helter Skelter, right? And I um, I've never read it, but it's a uh, kind of long been held to be the defining book on the kind of Manson murders and everything that went on written by uh, the lawyer for the prosecution, Vince Bugliosi, um, who we'll talk about a lot yeah. uh, as we get into um, the ins and outs of uh, yeah. of, the, of the murders. I mean, but yeah, I don't, I don't really know that much about him as a person, his history. No, I, I knew a bit about that there was a theory that was called the Helter Skelter Theory. I didn't know that there was a, a, a book that was written by the prosecution law existed, yeah. but I... I I vaguely was aware that that he um, instructed his followers to yeah. to kill the wife of Roman Polanski, Sharon Tate, and a few other people who I didn't know uh, in in this house, and it was due to starting a race war because he'd been inspired by listening to a Beatles track. That that's that's about kind of what I knew. And other than that, yeah, it's like you said, he was a. Um, 
you know, it's in that way where you say a lot of people have uh, posters of Jimi Hendrix up on their wall, namely yeah. a single song he did kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's that there's there's a lot, of, it's become a brand almost. You see his mugshot in a lot of kind of 60s style posters and things like that. And yeah. he has become, yeah, like you say, a very defining image of of the late 60s and perhaps certainly i think has become a touchstone for uh i think uh, quite a lot of kind of anti uh anti-establishment kind of um well i'd say like uh, uh, has become a touchstone for kind of people deriding the hippie movement in uh, the late yeah. 60s and things yeah. like that because obviously they're saying no the hippies weren't peace loving they were a murderous cult kind of thing and, yeah. and so i yeah, maybe that's why you know he's held up, especially also when you think of the coming war on drugs that yeah. you know came after. I say coming as in if we're in the sixties, yeah, going into that in the seventies and eighties, and and um, uh, the language that was kind of inspired by that is still used today. You know, still used by Trump. Yeah. Um, and I, but I also think, like so many things that happened around that time, they were the first time things were televised, and when you look at the footage that America yeah. was seeing of Manson, yeah. He he uh, is quite an enigmatic um, figure in those court scenes. Yeah, um, and I think that's also stuck into people's memories yeah. in a big way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, so for those of you that that uh, like us before we started this, know very little, or, or, or those of you who don't know anything about Charles Manson at all, he was born in 1934 to uh, Kathleen Maddox, who was just 16 at the time, um, and. Um, she herself had a lot of problems. You say uh, not the easiest mother. Um, yeah, um, probably a lot of mental health issues. Um, and she was an alcoholic as well, wasn't she? She was an alcoholic, and um, he never knew his biological father. Um, she used to tell him that he was a colonel, um, but it was later discovered that that was probably not true, and he was actually a con man. So either That's she genuinely did think he was a colonel, or she knew the truth and was just kind of trying to impress. Or, or you know make make Charles Charlie feel better about not knowing his dad by saying oh he was off fighting in the wars and stuff that is interesting on the Wikipedia entry which is always not the most reliable it yeah. does say Colonel HW Scott senior mm, so yeah I'm wondering if that was put on his birth certificate but actually Maybe. completely unfounded yeah um, yeah um interesting so yeah so he he you know took off pretty much it was a one night yeah. stand kind of deal um and then uh, she remarried while she was still pregnant with Charles Manson, um, and that's where the Manson surname comes so from. So William Manson yeah. was uh, was his stepfather, yeah. yeah. So that's where the the Manson name comes from. And he wasn't a very nice character either, was he? No, um, no. We don't um, know that much about him. Well, um, al al yeah. I mean, although uh, he seemed to, they they him and Kathleen eventually broke up because he he cited her negligence because her and her brother, Charles Manson's uncle, Luther, would go around and do, uh, commit robberies and right. things like that. And, and yeah, go out all night and get drunk and kind of leave uh, Charles Manson with loads of babysitters. Very, very absent kind of parenting. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, so he didn't get the best kind of start um, in life. And he said uh, in an interview when he was in prison with Barbara Walters, he claimed that at the age of nine, he burnt his school down. Um, which has not not uh, been proven. No. Um, but yeah, uh, he certainly, in interviews and, and, and articles and things, 
he seems to be quite forthcoming about yeah. how unhappy he was as a child and how upset he felt about being dealt a bad hand with his yeah. mother. Yeah, uh, I think mainly. Um, so yeah, so uh, the next few years he was kind of bounced around because his uh, for these robberies his mother I believe got five years in jail and so he went to live with an aunt and uncle um, and then she uh yeah eventually was 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 released and he actually said those few weeks after she was released were the happiest in his whole life um whilst things were kind of stable for a moment yeah, yeah. um and uh anyway yeah uh, from a very young age kind of committing these kind of crimes quite petty starting around. off as quite petty crimes yes yeah. but um bit constantly being disciplined and eventually um going into uh kind of you know high a school for for several schools um yeah. for high dis, highly you know kids in need of high discipline um thinking they'd kind of beat it out with them with a kind of military attitude yeah and i think these were very harsh environments um and manson you'd think would kind of as this criminal you know pin up of, of criminality yeah um maybe that would harden him but it seemed like actually those experiences left him feeling very very weak um yeah we know that whilst at those schools he he was raped on a number of occasions yeah. um and he was very quite quite a, a slight figure as yeah. well um i can't remember his exact height but he wasn't much over no. five five foot five i think yeah um so unable to fight back um and then later on uh, when he was a little bit older was also found uh, uh raping another boy um uh and he kind of claims that that was that was the way things were done it was kind of a dog eat dog situation yeah um so yeah so he was kind of properly incarcerated in correctional facility at the age of 13 um and by the age of about 33 34 at the kind of height of his uh family and his kind of cult leader status at that point he'd spent over half his life um in institutions which yeah says a lot about the the correctional system i suppose yeah um and and a lot of the things you read about people talking about Manson is that he never felt comfortable in the real world um yeah. uh and was almost always trying to get back to to prison well is that way. thing at least um, in prison i'm i know who i am uh mm. and i get three square meals a day yeah um, well you know there was a a, a, a a interesting interview i was reading um the other day where basically they were saying he he'd managed to figure out how to live in institutions you know it right. took him from 13 to 30 to work it out and the minute he works it out and works out what life is how to handle it um you know he apparently had actually become quite well behaved at this point um and then and he taught himself guitar yeah um, taught himself guitar all this kind of stuff and then he's immediately ripped out of that system yeah. that he's just come comfortable with and then in a world where he spent most of his adult life not in and then having to um readjust to that yeah you know i mean not not wanting to sound like we're uh manson sympathizes here obviously he's just responsible for some very terrible things and was a very yes of course screwed up individual but just giving you the context of of uh you know i mean i'm i personally um one of my fundamental beliefs is I don't believe in the concept of evil, of good and evil. I yeah. don't believe it exists. I think, uh, you know, you, you, I don't think anyone is inherently evil. Um, and that is an interesting thing to say because, because Charles Manson has definitely achieved that cult like uh, criminal pinup 
status because of of being the embodiment of evil yeah this idea of evil yeah. has been attached to him um and yeah it's probably worth saying that neither of us kind of subscribe to those binaries no no i think i think it's you know i think that there you know psychological profiling exists for a reason and you have classifications like uh sociopathy psychopathy those kind of things for for, for that very reason and and it's very 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 rare to find people who are you know incredibly uh cognitively well adjusted and things like that 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 go and commit heinous kind of crimes it's it tends to one follow the other so i'm yeah Yeah. i I think plenty of evidence that out there there's no such thing as just being evil because you're born evil or whatever I, i i it's a it's a lot of that's tied up in religious dogma that I don't really ascribe to. And I think it's interesting also just to acknowledge that when we're talking about Manson's family uh, kind of biography, that he was very much a product of his society. A lot of um, the way he behaved would yeah. kind of make sense given his start in life exactly. and his institutionalization, and that's worth kind of bearing in mind as we uh, kind of segue into uh, um, let you know how how that start in the real world outside of institutions led to his involvement in a whole load of things that i had no idea of yeah um so yeah so 1967 he's released from prison yeah and he moves to berkeley in uh which is a kind of suburb of san francisco famous for berkeley university right top ivy league uh college in america Um, and and good for very much liberal arts based as well big music department drama department um i i spent a week in berkeley did you it sounds like the start of a song (laughs) i spent a week in berkeley it's um it's a lovely place it reminded me very much like an american brighton oh really Um, yeah very 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 alternative and i guess because it's still i mean this this was about what nine ten years ago Mm. um and very much you could still feel the spirit of of the late 60s there oh, wow. um very very alternative yeah kind of i mean was you're only really then what 2010 at the start of the kind of hipster movement yeah. but you could see it in full force there you know every, about every third shop was a vegan pizza <laughs> yeah. and stuff. yeah, yeah. But, um, but no a, a lovely a lovely place and he was there uh, uh at berkeley and met um mary bruner who is important because she is probably the first manson follower yeah, it seems like if uh, Manson did kind of have a um, a, uh, a cult, yeah. um, and we'll be kind of talking about that later in detail, but the idea of Manson's cult family really does start with, with Mary Bruner. And, and we might be referring to her a little bit as Mother Mary as yeah. we go along uh, for the sake of ease, but also um, she was seen as a kind of mother figure of mm-hmm. the Manson family, which yeah. is quite important. Well, one of the fascinating things that I found uh, during this research is that that so i'd of what i did know about charles manson was i'd always lumped him in with you know like jim jones and the people's temple david koresh and branch yeah, of Indians. i thought he was a less effective cult leader yeah than others so i don't know why he was always more famous yeah but actually when i in the research it shows that the majority of the women were not picked up and recruited by him it was mary bruner that was going out and bringing a lot of these girls back mm. um it feels very much like he is uh, less like this sort of all-seeing, all-knowing leader that they all worshipped, and just kind of like, yeah, he's the head of it, but there also are all these other people involved, and it actually felt more democratic as a as a group than I realised. 
I think at um, this point, definitely, yeah. in 67, because we're we're talking about the first summer of love. Yeah. We're talking about Berkeley, which is where, you know, and if you're going to San Francisco, yeah. you know, all of this this culture that he was being thrown out of institution into yeah. wouldn't have wouldn't have gone along with the idea of a kind of patriarchal um so it makes sense that he would he he, he was going around a more democratic yeah. communal uh, yeah. route. So yeah, so he becomes very prominent uh, uh, along with Mary Bruner as a uh, guru in the Haight Ashbury district of San Francisco. Haight Ashbury is was in the sixties and it still seems as, as like the epicenter of the hippie movement in America. Yeah, of the counterculture. I mean, a- anyone who was anyone of that kind of left field, you know, uh, uh, Ginsburg and Kerouac and all those mm-hmm. guys were all there at Haight Ashbury. Everyone, all the all the musicians at the time were there. And it was interesting because it, the Hate Ashbury um, as a place also had a place called the Hate Ashbury Free Health Clinic. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll talk about that in a lot more detail. Um, but it was very important because it's where a lot of famous figures in history crossed over. Um, and Manson and the Manson family used to frequent it a lot. Um, not least because uh, you could get free uh, health care, whether yeah. it was sexual health, uh, pregnancy. It was one of the only places in America where that was okay. You could walk in, you could queue up. And you could get actually medical medical help yeah. um, whenever you wanted, which is amazing. I can't imagine that being in America today, yeah, yeah. Um, at all. Um, <laughs> sadly, no. Um, so yeah, so Manson was was there in Hay Ashbury preaching a philosophy that he'd largely stolen uh, from uh, this sort of Satanist church called the Process Church of the Final Judgment, uh, which actually started in London, but then had much more success in the sixties in America. Um, but you do have people like um, uh, Anton LaVey, Alistair Crowley, all kind of linked up with these guys. Um, and they, it's almost, there's a gothic link to it, isn't it? Yeah. So they believed that Satan and Christ had reconciled <laughs> and were coming back as like a tag team. Good duo. <laughs> yeah. To to cast judgment on the people of Earth. Um so you described it as almost like a bit of an audition process. Yeah, it's like, it's like X Factor. So they're going to line everyone Armageddon. up and just yeah. see if you were good or bad, and yeah. then you'd get judged. Yeah, one way or by, the other by it by the team of Jesus and Satan. It, I mean, it's it's madness. Um, but uh, but yeah, this is this is what he was kind of uh, espousing during '67 at Hay Ashbury, and was getting kind of yeah m- more and more people kind of flocking, mainly women. Um, yeah. He said, uh, again, I was saying that, that Mary Bruner was doing a lot of the actual legwork in kind of recruiting and meeting people in Ashbury, bringing them in. Um, and this was kind of for sort of the first few months of the summer. Then towards the tail end of the summer in 67, they leave Ashbury, they get a school bus, uh, they rip out all the seats, put cushions all in it, and they travel the length and breadth of the West Coast. I mean, as far up as Washington State, as far down as into Mexico. And this um, is not an uncommon thing to do. I mean, no. I always when I think of a hippie bus, I think of the the um the the painted school bus in the Simpsons episode where Marge <laughs> yeah. goes off on the commune. You know, uh, it it kind of the pictures make it do look like that. You know, yeah. um, <clears throat> muralled bus, and they just drove up and down. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So they head off around. Eventually, they settle in uh, Topanga Canyon in uh or topanga valley i can never remember which i think it's topanga canyon yeah. it's topanga canyon it, uh yeah it's sort of a suburb of, of uh, los angeles um and uh this is where they start to kind of become embroiled in i guess the hollywood world 
where which I, I think is you know really interesting when you talk about where Hollywood is at this time um and we'll we'll talk a little bit about that but. and this is this is this is another interesting thing that sets him apart from your Jim Joneses your David Koresh's these 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 other cult leaders um that with with the Branch Davidians with the People's Temple it was all about removing themselves from society whether mm-hmm. that's setting up a commune in Waco in the middle of nowhere whether that was you know going down sort of uh central america and and creating uh your own your your own country basically is what yeah. jim jones kind of did uh down there um this is about integrating a lot more it, it, they 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 weren't about keeping themselves separate because they were manson was constantly at these hollywood parties as were loads of his followers they were in and around the scene he was selling drugs to a lot of them i mean it, it, it's, it's the first time also in in this podcast certainly um, but it's the first time you start to find a crack between the link of charles manson following your typical cult leader yeah uh, removal isolationist kind of attitude it's very much at odds with the process church and what he claims to have been believing in and preaching. Yeah. Uh, the way he behaved was very, you know, he loved being around people. He, I think actually he quite enjoyed the possibility of climbing a Hollywood social ladder. Yeah. Um, and I think those, I think that's where his, uh, his kind of cult leader abilities suffered a little bit because um, he, he didn't, he didn't believe in his theories as much as he did enjoy the social aspect yeah. and being involved in Hollywood at that, at that time. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he was in and around there. 1968, Mary Bruner gives birth to uh, their son. Yes. Um, who I believe Manson uh, initially named Zaz- Zazose Zadfrak Flutz or something along those lines. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, before I think his actual legal name was was uh, Va- Valentine. Um, Valentine, um, and named because of a book Manson loved, um, which I immediately forgot the name of, um, where the ne- main character was was Valentine. But it was a mm. kind of dystopian novel um, that uh, was fairly influential at the time. And um, he used to, it was one of few books he'd actually read because he couldn't read very well and he couldn't write very well, unsurprisingly given his lack of edu- yeah. stable education. But um, he did persevere with certain things and he used to quote quite often, sometimes from the book of Revelations, but uh, also a lot from this book um, where Valentine was the hero. So yeah. I think he felt quite, you know, he I think he was quite uh, invested in yeah. his son. Yeah. Um, um, so, uh, and and there was talk and apparently all the other women were kind of there and around, obviously gave birth in the commune and things mm-hmm. like that. Um so yeah, it's a kid kind of born born into this world, um, and um, it's it's around this point um, that they <laughs> become connected to the drummer of the Beach Boys, Dennis Wilson, which I find fascinating. Yeah, um, I mean, when we th- talk about the Beach Boys now, we kind of talk about them as you know music legends, incredible. But I think for those of you who who, who aren't necessarily as as into 60s music it's worth bearing in mind that that the wilson family and the beach boys as a band did so much to change music um it was it was always a, a an interesting uh, quote of brian wilson who, who mm. was kind of the brain uh, of the beach boys saying that um they hit him him and the beatles were racing in order to kind of keep breaking boundaries and it yeah. wasn't until the beatles released sergeant pepper that he felt that they'd beat him in the race for the first time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so really innovative in terms of their 
producing um, and financially one of the biggest bands mm-hmm. in the world. And they were producing, they had their own record yeah. label, huge uh, at this time. Just a side note, um, our, our friend Josh pointed out something interesting to me the other day via text is that uh, if you find the video on YouTube of Gary Oldman getting into the Winston Churchill prosthetics. Oh, yeah. Uh, about halfway through, if you pause it, he turns into Latter-day Brian Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great fun fact. I can kind of believe, I can have yeah. imagined it yeah. in my head. Yeah. And I believe that. It's just before he puts the bald cap on. Yeah. Gary Oldman's hair with the Churchill face prosthetics is absolutely Brian Wilson. Oh, right. That's the costume he should have gone for in <laughs> our other Ready Requests episode, The Big Hit. Yes, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um yeah, a uh, huge hugely massive band and Dennis Wilson uh being not only a Wilson and kind of like an important member of the Beach Boys the drummer but also the very very attractive pretty one. He was very popular. Um Did you mean least important member of the No, he he was one of the most important members as well as being the drummer, all right? So the, what's happening now <laughs> if you're at home is that I am a musician but primarily a drummer. <laughs> And Dave's taking the mick out of me and telling me that drummers aren't important. Wouldn't dream of it. That's exactly what's going on here. I don't think you can fool me. Which call the guy following a bunch of talented musicians? Ah, drummer. So, uh, (laughs) we get to Dennis Wilson. And uh, Dennis Wilson... is, well, actually, for anyone who's seen, um, it's probably not the first time we're going to bring up this film, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which yeah. of course deals with Charles Manson in a in a very bizarre sort of alternate reality way of mm. imagine if it didn't happen this way. Um, I I loved it. I I would have shaved about twenty minutes off the film, but that's like yeah. a lot of latter day Tarantino yeah. these days. Um, but I think it's, it's beautifully shot. I think it perfectly captures that period of the sixties that we're going to talk about in a little bit. But um, uh. One there's there's the sort of scene of, of Brad Pitt kind of drive, driving around and ends up picking up those Manson family girls, mm-hmm. and apparently that's basically what happened with Dennis Wilson. He was driving around; they were hitchhiking. Right. He became friendly with them. They went to a couple of parties, went back and told Manson how great this house was. So they all move in. When Dennis Wilson's like out recording, and he just comes back, and Charles Manson's in his driveway, and he says, "Are you going to hurt me?" He's a complete stranger in his house. And he's like, no, no, I worship you. And then apparently knelt down and kissed his feet. Is yeah. that right? Kissed Dennis Wilson's feet. And um, and then all the, the rest of the family, um, the girls particularly followed suit. Uh, Dennis Wilson um, had one kind of major, many weaknesses in his life perhaps, um, but one was that he was a member of a, a trio called uh, the Penetrators, or mm. the Golden Penetrators. Um, and uh, it was himself, a friend Tony Melcher, um, who was a producer of the Beach Boys, who come in uh, to play later again yeah. um, but the three of them used to have a competition to see how much sex they could have on one night how many women they could <laughs> penetrate um, so when he came back initially being rather angry at Manson yeah. being this crazy character living in his flat quickly that was dispelled by Wilson becoming well suddenly having a lot of women on tap yeah. uh, we know that Manson uh, the Manson family bought and sold their way through life very much with sex as their commodity and yeah. as their cash um um which is kind of hardly surprising but in the 60s also blurred lines over the sexual revolution and women's you know independence what to do with their bodies and the birth of the pill so um yeah terry uh, uh, dennis wilson um ended up kind of staying with them yeah and and apparently there was a period of time um during when Manson and the family were living at Dennis Wilson's, where apparently Dennis Wilson was actually trying to get the the Beach Boys to disband and join a band with Manson, which is just 
I mean, this is incredible. Because I love it because Dennis Wilson, so like many years afterwards, downplayed of, yeah. as you would. I yeah. mean, but but there's so much evidence of people around at the time who's like, no, he absolutely worshipped Manson. He thought he was an amazing, amazing songwriter. That's why he connected him up to Terry Melcher. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so it's it's just very funny if you read stuff from Wilson now, and he's like, oh, we weren't we weren't really that close, really. But he knew him. Yeah, met him a couple nah. of times. Yeah, um, m- most people. Um, all di- different scholars of the of the 60s and the Manson family say that the Manson became the Manson family in Dennis Wilson's flat mm. and that Dennis Wilson was kind of talked about as a co-founder of the family rather than it yeah. being Manson and the girls at Haight-Ashbury this was the Manson family and that kind of ideology uh, yeah. was kind of really set in stone and kind of born in the Wilson flat yeah um problem is uh they cost Dennis Wilson about a hundred grand <laughs> yeah, in I mean, about three months. That's, yeah. Um, uh, apparently, twenty-eight thousand of that was on gonorrhea treatments for the girls. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's not that surprising, but still, it's a no. big. I mean, in today's money, that's an awful lot. But, yeah. Um, um, so, so, yeah. So that took the edge off it for him. Yeah, but yeah, basically, they yeah they they kind of came back one day and the locks had been changed and they weren't being allowed in. Well. I understand that, that he, he wanted them to leave and they wouldn't. Yeah. And he'd had a change of heart and said, I need to get my head together. And they wouldn't. So he stopped and he changed the locks and they yeah. still wouldn't. But he stopped paying the rent until eventually and the landlord the had to landlord, kick them yeah. out. Because he was like, it's not my property anymore. Yeah. I don't live there. It's not my problem. Yeah. But they were just I mean, determined that, to stay It's an extreme there. way that he's like, I'm, I'm willing to lose my own house to get rid of you. Yeah. Like it's, yeah. Um, so yeah, so they had to find somewhere else to go. And then they discovered... Spawn Ranch, which again, if you've seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that's where they are at that point. Um, yeah, where I mean, from there at Spawn Ranch, which is uh, this old. It, it was used for shooting westerns. Yeah, um, in the sort of fifties, which um, is which is why Hollywood kind of existed because yeah. they realised that they could shoot, you know, uh, westerns that often were kind of filmed out in Spain and, and Tenerife yeah. was main Tenerife's main economy was shooting spaghetti westerns and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but they, but they had all this sunlight, so they built a ranch there. Yeah. That, that's kind of why a lot of Hollywood exists. Um, yeah, I mean, don't forget Spaghetti Westerns were kind of in more into the 60s. And oh, okay. But, yeah, but, um, yeah it, largely... So it was built before then. Yeah. yeah um, and uh, it was, yeah, used uh, loads and loads for, for uh, uh, filming Westerns until the owner, George Spahn, started to get on a bit, retired, and then he just kind of uh, used it for people to come and uh like rent horses and they could just go and ride around um the ranch and it was still a working ranch even when the Manson family were living there because uh earlier on this morning actually i was l- sifting through some videos that i yet hadn't seen of which there are very few now on youtube <laughs> yeah. um, but i found an interview with mr walter white himself brian cranston ah. who talks about him and his cousin at the age of 12 going and riding horses at Spawn ranch and being about halfway through running around hearing all these people going uh, Charlie's on the mountain. Charlie's on the mountain, and like running, and oh and he actually goodness. had this interaction with with Charles, obviously not knowing who the hell he was. That's and then fantastic. He said about yeah, a year of you know a, a, a bit less than a year later, yeah. sees it on the TV, and his cousin friends was like, oh my god, are you seeing this? That's the guy. That's the guy from the ranch. I mean, <laughs> so incredible. And and George Spahn, the owner, um, stayed there. Yeah. Um, so George throughout Spahn, this period, eight, eighty years old, um, <clears throat> and. Uh, they got to stay there for free because Charles Manson made all the women in the Manson family have sex with 80-year-old George, blind George <clears throat> Spahn. Yeah. Um, not, and they were also great. his um, uh, kind of uh, seeing-eye people. 
uh, yeah. and would kind of, yeah, uh, walk him around and guide him and things like that. And interestingly, what I discovered was um, uh, I knew vaguely that all the, the followers had nicknames. Obviously, I assumed that was ascribed to them by Manson, again, asserting mm-hmm. his leadership. I'm going to rename you this, this, and this. It wasn't. It was George Spahn. George Spahn came up with all the all the nicknames. Um, One follower who we'll come to probably a bit later, Squeaky From, um, uh, he called her that because of the sound she made when he put his hand up her leg, which just is... Yeah. Um, uh, and, and and things like that. So yeah, George Spahn, not, not exactly a sort of, you know, idle bystander. It seems, you know, he was very much engaged with the family. Um, <laughs> carnally. Yeah, and d- doesn't seem to be mentioned very much at all, but yeah, that he is featured in uh, Once Upon a Time in America. Uh, Once Upon in a Time Hollywood, in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, as a, a rather gross character. Um, so yeah, so they're they're and then they're at the Spawn Ranch, really, um, until uh, of course the events of eighth uh, of August, nineteen sixty nine. But just before we get there, we get to early sixty nine March, um, which is when uh, Charles Manson visits uh, one thousand fifty Cielo Drive, um, yeah. which is the, the home where uh, the Tate murders happen because um, he's looking for Terry Melcher, who did used to live there with the actress Candice Bergen from Murphy Brown and Boston yeah. Eagle and stuff. Um, but they had, they'd had moved, and uh, there was a guy, Sharat Katami, yeah. um, who was a photographer, quite a famous photographer at the time. He was like a professional Hollywood photographer, but mm. he'd, he'd, he'd invented the term personal photographer. Mm. So you could hire him as your personal photographer. And Sharon Tate had hired him as her personal photographer. So yeah. if you wanted pictures of Sharon Tate, they would all be taken by uh, Sharon Katami, mm-hmm. who... And, and it, but it's kind of a really... It seems like a really silly thing to have, to, to job to do. But again, this was very much what they were doing in, at this time in Hollywood. They were inventing kind of new ideas. Yeah. Um, and it's very much what uh, Jay Sebring uh, was doing as um, Sharon Tate's hairdresser. Yeah. Um, and hairdressers to many in Hollywood, but also the first one to style men's hair. Yeah. For the first time ever. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Shrok Katami, uh, I believe, lied because he did know where Trey Melcher had moved to, but told him not because I think he knew something was a bit, a bit iffy offy. With, this, yeah. with this guy. Um, so we know that Manson was uh, at one point at that house before the murders happened. Um, and then you get these series of events uh, that are kicked off in, in May of 69 uh, when Charles Manson shot a guy called Lots of Popper Crow. Great. There are a lot, um, of, a lot of names, but some of them are great names. Yeah. Uh, so Lots of Popper Crow was uh, a African-American who um, they were involved in uh, with uh, drug smuggling and dealing with um, drug deal that had sort of gone bad. And they ended up shooting Lots of Popper Crow. Uh, in Manson's Hollywood apartment, which I didn't even know existed, and I can't really find much out about how or why. I, I he didn't had know this. that until you brought that in. Yeah, uh, uh, there's nowhere that says Hollywood. Uh, he had a Hollywood man, uh, Hollywood yeah. flat, um, so, um, and it yeah. doesn't really go with the fact that I mean, he didn't have a job. He had a dreadful criminal record. Yeah, yeah. How would he have secured that? But, yeah, um, um, a couple so, yeah. of mentions. So yeah, so I'm, I'm not sure what that is, and they they falsely believe that they killed him well we'll find out later on that they didn't um and uh yeah he actually comes uh in to testify at manson's trial which is the first thing manson realizes of him being alive so <laughs> imagine that moment yeah quite something um so that's kind of the first 
documented real kind of ultra violence i know in the years and decades that have followed they now think there might be dozens and dozens of murders that are unsolved in around the area that are mm-hmm. potentially could be linked uh, a to of, the a lot of uh, buried bodies yeah um and then then we get to july of 69 just a couple of weeks before the 8th of august and the the manson family murders as they're known um one of the followers of charles manson bobby Busselet, goes and visits a guy called gary hinman gary hinman's been kind of uh, he, he was a teacher, I believe, um, and uh, a, a music teacher, I think. He uh, seemed uh, like, a, like a square, like yeah. a normal guy, um, but somehow found himself on the fringes. Yeah, and was kind of had been helping them a little bit out with money and and uh, with some money and some music. Yeah, me- recording stuff. Um, and Manson got it into his head that Hinman, they basically wanted him. Hinman was quite well off, and they wanted yeah. his his assets. So they sent Buselay, uh along with a couple of the other girls i think maybe sexy sadie um uh, yeah i think almost de- well we don't really know do we but no. but yeah i think sadie um and um and and that that's her nickname isn't it um, yeah yeah uh, susan atkins susan atkins yeah who, who you'd read about but uh, her nickname um, so yeah so um basically they get sent to try and convert gary hinman he doesn't want to be a part of it. Manson turns up with a samurai sword. Yeah. Uh, and uh, cuts off part of Hinman's ear. Um, and then Busselet kills him. Which is just, I mean, that's, that is out of a Tarantino film, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So that's, yeah, very, very dark stuff going on there. And then literally you have a couple of weeks later, you have Susan Atkins, who was known as Sexy Sadie, the Beatles reference. Uh, you have Linda Kasabian, and you have uh, Patricia Kremwinkle, who mm-hmm. was also known as uh, Katie. Katie. Um, yeah, I think all those three are, are hugely important um, to to the trial um, and to the case as we go forward. Yeah. But also very, very important when we talk about the when we talk about the Manson family. We're yeah. talking about lots of people, but really in yeah. terms of the actual traceable actions of the individuals around the Tate murders and around. Uh, the, the operation of the money. Yeah. The hierarchy seemed to be with Katie uh, and Sadie um, and also Squeaky From. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, Squeaky From was actually the, I believe, the second or certainly very, very early joiner after Mary Bruno. Um, and she wanted to go, but Manson wouldn't let her because she thought she was too mentally unhinged right. to go and commit a murder. Too mentally unhinged to go and commit a murder. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Just that's that's um, Yeah. Um, and uh, so she didn't end up going, but does something very interesting slightly later on um, that we're going to get to towards the end of the podcast. Um, uh, and also they are with a guy called Tex Watson. Uh, Charles Tex Watson. Obviously, wouldn't love to be called Charles because there's yeah. only, only one Charles in this family. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so he was called Tex. He was from Texas. Um, but basically, a lot of people say he was like the most evil of anyone, even more than Manson. Like he was just straight up yeah. bad dude. I think he was. He was. Um, he'd had a history already mm-hmm. um, for being a bit violent. He um, was involved in in the biker gangs um, and had run, I think, with um, Satan's uh, what they called the Satan's crew biker. Oh yeah, crew yeah, yeah. At the time, they weren't um, Hell's Angels. They were called. No. Uh, um, yeah, I'll find it in a minute. But um, yeah, so he he'd kind of had a bit of a bad rep for 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 that kind of thing, and he seems to be 
always the one ready to commit a murder. Yeah. Always ready to do the yeah, violent yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's what you say when he comes across as a bad dude. You're like, that he doesn't need to be any pushed it or, in, or manipulated into anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This guy is definitely a murderer. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, on the 8th of August, these four, uh, Atkins, Kasabian, Krenwinkle and Watson, uh, go to 1050 Cielo Drive. Yeah. Um, and they kill everyone inside. And that is uh, Sharon Tate, actress and wife of uh, director Roman Polanski. Um, uh, her, as you say, hairdresser, but also he was madly in love with her. And I think they had either been married or been engaged. Or they, they had something before she met Polanski. Shady, they did have a relationship. But they had definitely had a relationship. And, and in, in the film Once Upon a Time in America, there's a scene where... Um, uh, Polanski and, and Tate and Sebring and I think Leo DiCaprio's character mm-hmm. are having a chat and they talk about the fact that do you think Polanski knows that you know Sharon's never really mm-hmm. you know she's always held a candle for for Jay and all that kind of thing so it seemed and uh, although that was obviously a piece of fiction yeah. I think it's quite a good if you have seen that scene I think that does seem to be a fairly decent kind of uh, dramatization of the the feeling around their relationship yeah they were certainly very close yeah, um, and you also had uh, Sharon Tate's friend Abigail Folger, uh, who fascinating was, character. Yeah, um, uh, a sort of a socialite, very much from this kind of Folger dynasty. Uh, uh, family. I can't remember what they did now. Was it grocery stores or Folgers? Yeah, Folgers really, is a yeah, is a is a famous chain, chain of chain stores. Yeah, grocery stores in America, right? Um, and yes, yeah, so she was kind of from this very very wealthy family. Um, her husband wasn't he Wojciech or were they just dating Wojciech Frakowski I think they I don't know if they're married but yeah but they were together they were an item Uh, yeah Wojciech Frakowski uh, and uh, those were the four that were inside the house and then there was a guy called Stephen Parent uh, who was visiting uh, someone that was living in the guest house at the time and it sounds like for him more than anyone it was just kind of wrong place wrong time time. yeah he was pulling out of the driveway and tried to kind of stop them going in and they just shot him in, in the car um, yeah. And then they went in and and yeah killed all the all the members um, uh, inside the house um, and so yeah so that was kind of uh, the murders that took place on the eighth. Um, not going to go into grisly details because who needs who needs that? Who um, needs that? Yeah, you can look them up. Um, yeah, if you're interested. But and uh, uh, there are things that we'll refer to uh, later on. It's, it's um, worth mentioning that Sharon Tate was also pregnant. Um, it, yeah, so they also uh, killed the a, unborn child as well. That was that was a, a double murder on top of everything else particularly gruesome very violent and um and s- talked about hugely yeah uh in the coming days and weeks and months um leading yeah. up to there's a there's a similar feeling i think to um it's hard these days to remember a time before covid but uh uh about two months ago two and a half months ago before all this kicked off uh uh when kobe bryant uh, tragically yeah. died there was this you could tell there was this sea change in hollywood of like we're we're not invincible mm-hmm. because our money and our fame uh, you know ha- doesn't protect us from, from to, bad kobe, things kobe bryant can't die not kobe bryant if kobe bryant died none of us safe and there was this thing, you know sharon tate and palanski were that and, and and actually um uh one of the interesting things that i've heard a couple of people talk about is that house, the house at Cielo Drive, because mm-hmm. Melcher and Bergen were there before, they had actually kind of inherited this party house and they became these central figures on the Hollywood party scene. 
more for their postcode than actually who they actually yeah, were because people, because Meltzer and Bergen used to do all these huge parties at 1050 Cielo Drive and then they came in and started doing all these parties so it really was like for Hollywood insiders for those within the industry it was like the death of of that time yeah um which again is something I think that's beautifully picked up in in Once Upon a Time in, in Hollywood is even before the the brutal murders felt like this exclamation point on this sentence that had been being written about the death of, of Hollywood for the past few few years, or at least the death of the golden age. I think that is really important. When people talk about the golden age of Holly, Holly, Hollywood, that we can be very kind of vague about when it started, but when it ends, everyone kind of talks about the Sharon Tate murders and the Manson family ended the golden age of Hollywood. And, and, and it is important to talk about how much the press kind of jumped on this case and talked about every gruesome detail. Yeah. Um, so much so that, like I say, there's no point in going into it because you can read so much about yeah. what happened and how it happened, um, and the, the the blood involved. Um, so so yeah, it really shook Hollywood to its core. Yeah, um, and it was uh, then kind of followed up two days later on mm-hmm. the 10th of August uh, with the murder of Lino and Rosemary Labianca. Um, which you might refer to going forward as the Labianca murders. Yeah, uh, and uh, they were killed uh, in an area of LA known as Los Feliz. It's kind of um, like the other side. It's not. It's not nearby, is it? No. Um, and uh, they were uh, owned a, um, a sort of grocery store in in LA, um, mm-hmm. and uh, they allegedly were killed because basically Manson was really angry at how it had gone down two nights before and accused mm-hmm. uh the followers that were there that committed it of not knowing how to do it properly and said look i'll show you how to do a murder properly and then said to go to that that address yeah and th- it was similar um there were similarities in the two murders and uh in when we get to the trial you know there are lots of similar descriptions about how the instructions were given but still quite vague as to why why these people um yeah. and the only real connection uh between the two murders was that um there was a word written in blood on the walls of both murder crime scenes um uh, and it was pig mm-hmm. um in various different sentences um uh, which were was also uh at the Busselet Hinman murder it was uh Political picky. Political picky. I forgot about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we've got you know at least three, but maybe more murders that seem to be connected. Yeah. Um, well, although at this point uh, the police don't know that the LAPD certainly. And was it? Um, am I right in saying it was that they got Labianca's wallet and put it into an area, chucked it into an area in LA that they knew was predominantly african-american so that the black panthers so, would be implicated there was a suggestion that um the the word pig was very much how uh black panthers at the time um would would talk about not just police as you yeah. might hear today but any kind of white establishment mm-hmm. um so it was quite important that um the the victims of our murders were white as well yeah um so the theory goes um which we'll get into in a bit more detail in a minute uh, but the theory goes that um the the murders were staged to make it look like they were um done by the black panthers yeah um but we know that not to be true yeah um so yeah so that's that's kind of the murders that takes us up to from um, from yeah manson's birth to 69 yeah yeah absolutely 
Um, so yeah, and I think just very briefly before we go into the sort of time uh, of the 60s and everything that was going on and in and around that and how that adds to the wider context of things, just want to touch on briefly what the kind of accepted theory is today before we go into it in a bit more detail. Yeah, and I think also it'll give us a shorthand going forward. Mm. Um, so we've mentioned uh, the phrase Helter Skelter a few times. Um, now, we know, uh, obviously, there was a famous Beatles song called Helter Skelter that featured on the White Album. Um, but when we talk about Helter Skelter in reference to Manson, we're not just talking about the song. Helter Skelter has now become the name of the theory with which... Uh, Manson was prosecuted and the Manson family were prosecuted. So yeah. anytime someone talks about Helter Skelter, what they are specifically talking about is uh, Vince Bugliosi, the DA for prosecution, um, who, his idea of how the murders happened and what went down. So, very kind of briefly, the idea was that Manson was inspired by uh, the song Helter Skelter um, and believed the Beatles were sending messages to him in code. And he used to play the records backwards and forwards, um, according to the court case, and get messages from them. And Manson said the messages from the Beatles were that there was an apocalyptic race war coming mm -hmm. and it was going to be between the, the, to quote, the blacks and the whites. Um, and what would happen was that they would kind of almost exterminate each other. Yeah. And Manson's response to this was that he was going to get his commune and his family and they were going to leave the Spahn Ranch and go to Death Valley mm -hmm. and wait for the race war to end. And when it did end, Manson would emerge with his, you know, harem of women and his yeah. you know, potential children. Um, and then they would take back power. Now, there's no uh, denying that Manson was a racist. Um, yeah. But... Uh, kind of know much more than most people were at that time mm -hmm. um he 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 did talk about a race war but he wasn't particularly any more derogatory about people than uh, black people than 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 the government were really at that time yeah. to be honest um so yeah uh, the other idea is that the, that this was backed up with uh, bits of scripture that he'd memorized from the book of revelation um and uh, that the motivation for the Tate murders and the Labianca murders was to trigger uh, the race war mm -hmm. so by committing a, a, a murder against white elitist uh, establishment figures such as Tate and Sebring um, in Hollywood which has obviously got the spotlight on yeah. America uh, and blaming it on the Black Panthers then what would happen is they would blame it on the Black Panthers and then the Black Panthers would fight back against the government after being persecuted and there would be a white versus race war yeah. uh, Black, black versus white race war and this is the motivation um, so this is what Manson went to jail for yeah this is he he went to jail for uh, supposedly encouraging these Manson family members to go and commit this murder to this end yeah for this reason is that clear yeah yeah I think so okay. yeah okay. perfect so so that's where we are that's Manson that's the accepted theory um now to go into a little bit more about what we're going to talk about in this podcast, because obviously, you know, 54 minutes in, that's the introduction done. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it is important, guys. It, it you is. won't understand any of this without yeah. understanding all yeah. of that. Um, so, yeah, the 1960s. I, I think one of the most important things to think about when you talk about the 1960s is it is the decade from start to finish, probably ever in history, that made the most amount of progress from start to finish. When you look about yeah. it, technologically, societally, it, 
so I think I always feel like there was, I mean, you know, yes, you know, new iPhones come out every other year and things mm-hmm. like that, but but the difference is we're aware of it now and we there's an expectation of technology yeah. to advance. In the 60s, there wasn't that expectation of technology to advance. And, you know, you're talking about, uh, man, you know, going from man on space to man in the moon in, 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 mm-hmm. in, in the space of a decade, less than. Um, Introduction of computers. Yeah. Telephones being yeah. very easily accessible. Um, and films being in colour. Yeah, and television and... and um, mass production of music. Yeah. Uh, so this huge kind of uh, um, ramping up of, of and change of life is what I think led to what we were talking about earlier, this idea that the late 60s felt like the death of something, but they didn't know what it was. And to me, when you look at the ridiculous amount of these famous murders and crimes and conspiracies that happened in this period like 67 through to 71 Mm -hmm. it feels like it became like the wild west especially in america especially on the west coast it felt like this lawless atmosphere because people didn't know what was coming because they were felt maybe left behind by a world that was moving too fast for them to grasp onto because because we often talk about violence and and crime being actually a result of fear yeah and how most acts of violence are are fear in some way um and and i suppose in this context you're talking about an existential fear but also quite a literal fear of change yeah and and being left behind and do you think that fear uh, might have kind of driven it into the into this wild west chaotic kind of nature. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. We, uh, we lived for four months in Beijing back mm-hmm. in 2017, and we often commented about in Beijing, certain areas of Beijing, there was a similar feeling of lawlessness there, mm. and we and we said maybe it is because of because of trying to being this kind of authoritarian run country that a lot of the general population in Beijing aren't necessarily aware of what what things they'll do that could get them thrown into prison or what things that the police wouldn't care about and those things could change on a daily basis. I remember someone saying to us, you know, you could get shot for smoking a cigarette in the wrong street corner, so why worry about anything else? Yeah, So, and it feels like there was something similar going on here in America in the late 60s that because there was this level, this feeling of unknown, this feeling of all these things changing around them and not really having a grasp or understanding of what's going on, uh, there's just no point in worrying about anything. So mm-hmm. everyone was just kind of, you know, um, uh, you know, was it uh, tune in, turn on, drop out? Or was it Timothy Leary said this this, well, yeah. this idea of of yeah, kind of massively turning to drugs, especially things like marijuana and LSD, anything um, that was mind expanding. Yeah, because that was considered more important than the material world. And I, yeah. I think also when you talk about America being, you know, making a lot of money off the Second World War, economy yeah. being pretty good. You know, and then seeing its children throw all of that back in its face and say, "Yeah, actually, we don't care about TV and it can, all this yeah. technological advance might be great, but we don't care. Well, we and, want a spiritual advancement." And you've also got to talk about the rise of the teenager. Yeah, the invention of the teenager. The invention almost. of the teenager. You know, I mean, I mean, uh, both our our parents are uh, sort of similar ages, and whilst they were teenagers in the 60s they'd kind of reached their late teens by the end of this mm. period and so i know my mum talks about this idea she always says that she feels particularly hard done by because 
because she she got it from both ends because she got it she was you know got grief from her parents yeah but then she was the first generation of parents that got grief from their Younger kids sense. so it's, yeah their kids it's as well. this yeah it's it is it's this idea of of of, of counterculture and and um as we say you know there i think there are elements in that in the rock and roll of the 1950s and i think um great film uh called diner which was made in 1980 uh, a young kevin bacon um uh keith Sutherland, i think might be in it um and uh, but it's set in the 50s right and i think the the tagline of the film was uh the counterculture before the counterculture or something yeah. like that and it's and it's about so there definitely were these grassroots that are happening in the late 50s but but fast forward a decade and yeah, it is, you know... Uh, uh, it's one thing kind of like not making it home by curfew what, because is it you your, were listening to Elvis. Your 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 sons and daughters are beyond your command. Yeah. These times they're changing. Bob Dylan, a real you know, Dylan... Yeah, completely. Um, and, it, and, and that is very much the atmosphere of what's going on at that time. Uh, you have these groups starting to found that are, that are absolutely based in challenging the status quo, challenging the government at the time, which they saw as a particularly oppressed government um and i think they i think a lot of people were starting to question maybe for the first time properly question the authority and the transparency of the american government and i think that's largely because of uh 1963 and the shooting of jfk i think is a catalyst for the widespread mistrust in the government because i think most people realized that there was something fishy about that they weren't being given the full story and then lbj came in Mm -hmm. and was very clandestine and was you know probably the most right-wing democrat the democrats ever had double down on everything and 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 i think it and 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 to get to go from lbj into nixon um you've got this kind of real authoritarian air of, of of america being run at that point and i think also you know a lot of mistrust in the government not least because of the jfk murders but also uh, we won't necessarily talk about the, the the link of that because it's kind of up for up for grabs of whether whether JFK's assassination started um, started the the dwindling of faith in the Vietnam War or whether mm. that was going to happen anyway. Um, but people for the first time were saying our country, which we've been told is the free world and the best example of democracy in you know in the whole universe, are murdering people. Yeah. And being very shady about where they're doing it and why they're doing yeah. it. Yeah. And and I don't actually want to see any more bloodshed happening no. on the borders of Laos, Cambodia, or Vietnam. And yeah. And so I think that that mistrust is is mm-hmm. is huge as well. Mm-hmm. And LBJ coming in and doubling down on that for the yeah. most part of his tenureship is not great either. So yeah. So so you have um, you know yeah you 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 have that side of things. So so you have the the college groups set up in berkeley famously um uh and and a lot of anti-war protesters banned the bomb all that kind of stuff uh nuclear disarmament as well um all of these feeding into the kind of quote-unquote hippie counterculture yeah um and then at the same time you also had massive strides in the civil rights movement so you've got martin luther king leading what many to believe is a slightly more kind of establishment uh uh, a peaceful way of, yep. of of actually engaging and talking with the politicians and trying to make kind of these small incremental changes to 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 get there. Uh, and yeah, then a marathon, not a sprint. Kind yeah, of thing. and then obviously as you kind of go more more extreme through the civil rights movement, you you had groups like the Black Panthers 
Malcolm X, yeah. of course, uh, famously being part of before um, turning to the Nation of Islam. and, and... Yeah, but I mean, and I think also worth just highlighting for those that aren't aware uh, uh, that the Black Panthers weren't uh, a fringe group of the civil rights movement. No. They were hugely opposed to Martin Luther King and his yeah. methods. They were very organised, very large, but considered by the Los Angeles Police Force and the Sheriff's Office as running certain parts yeah. of L.A. Like, there were bits where police couldn't come in and out of yeah. whole little regions. Yeah. Um, not just estates, but yeah. whole mini towns. Um, and, and you also had, were they called Africa United? United Africa or something? United Africa, I believe. Yeah. Um, who are then at odds with Black Panthers because they yeah. disagree with kind of methods of how they were going to achieve civil rights and whether actually that was an achievement or whether um, there should be you know a kind of mass exodus towards africa yeah. and setting up liberia um so so these were huge yeah. and and i think we all learn about martin luther king and we learn a little bit about malcolm x yeah. kind of at school in this country but i think i didn't realize just how organized and highly opposed that these parties often were to each other yeah um so because of this you cultivated a situation where the government were trying to yeah. get a handle on it and trying to oppress it and trying to disseminate it wherever they could. And they did this through a range of, of operations. You had something called Operation Chaos, which uh, officially started about 1967, but things were going a little bit earlier, I think, than that. 67 to 73, it yeah. ran officially. And this was essentially a mission... What they said their mission was, was it was to uncover foreign influence on race, anti-war and protest movements. Uh, and they did this through very heavy and illegal surveillance. Um, yeah. And they did it through eventually trying to persuade anti-communist uh, Cuban defectors to try and, and, and plant them in these groups because they actually weren't finding any evidence that there were international agents trying to uh, influence these domestic groups. Yeah. So they then they started to try and organise that themselves so they could try and pin it. And it's an interesting thing, thing because uh, also Operation Chaos, when we say it's run by the government, we're talking about the CIA. Yeah, uh, um, uh, and it was led by a guy called Richard Helms, who was the director of the CIA. At this director point. of the CIA. So it was a, a big operation to to the CIA, but a, a very important operation to the government. But also CIA at this point, and I didn't realise until investigating this, that the CIA as a body yeah. cannot operate on US soil. It can only operate in international... international. Right. Uh, kind of waters or international territories um because it's central intelligence agency for bringing uh, mm -hmm. information from out into the from the world back to yeah. um to america so this operation is yeah. the first kind of real evidence we've got of an operation yeah. being run by the cia but on u.s soil justified because the information yeah. or the influence might be coming from foreign territories yeah and we should also say when we're talking about this atmosphere of the 60s that we didn't mention is you are still right bang in the middle of the cold war i mean don't Absolutely, forget the cold yeah. war didn't officially end until 1991 so <laughs> yeah. you know with the with, vietnam with the was coming, technically still going <laughs> yeah so so you know you've got you you, you you a lot of people think of cold war as being specifically mccarthyism and the witch hunts in the 50s yeah. 60s was still you know my 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 parents talk about this real fear people hiding under their the tables under the and, and yeah all this stuff uh, um uh, yeah my parents you were minutes drill, away from death had, had drills at constantly school, yeah where you'd get under the school desks yeah uh all through the the, the like 50s and 60s yeah so so again this it all adds to this this uh atmosphere of, of fear this 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 culture of fear that was going on in the 
in the 60s. And um, you can kind of see why they called it Operation Chaos, because it is a very chaotic, so- socially and culturally and political time. Yeah. It's very chaotic yeah. and hard to predict. Uh, and you talk about that fear. I wonder what kind of fear that instilled in the CIA. Yeah. That it pushed them to make this program. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think it was them... I don't think that they were genuinely worried about foreign agents from Cuba and Russia attempting to influence. I think they wanted that to be the case because what better caveat than from actually actively trying to shut down these groups? Because legally yeah. they had no foothold to actually get rid of these these um, you know counterculture groups. Yeah. Um, so if they could pin them all all on being on the take from Castro. Then it was a lot easier than it's a lot easier. problem solved. Um, yeah. But obviously that, that wasn't the case. At the same time, you had something that was being run by the FBI called COINTELPRO, which was uh, J. Edgar Hoover, um, uh, who was head of the uh, FBI at that time. Um, and and also had a complete nut job. Hoover yeah. definitely... In fact, actually, that's a very good biopic uh, with Leo DiCaprio playing J. Edgar Hoover. Yeah. Um, very paranoid, but kind of invented the Federal Bureau of Investigations. Yeah. Now, they could do whatever they wanted on US yeah. soil and yeah. tended to do whatever, when, whenever they wanted, yeah. um, with or without the support of the government. So, so and, and, and COINTELPRO was a mission to disrupt left-wing political organisations. So that, was, that wasn't about pinning anything. That was literally they were going in and... and planting people they had uh what's called agent provocateurs yeah which um, is you know part of very much our lexicon now isn't yeah it, you know yeah um you know these these kind of yeah f- uh double agents coming in and, and trying to uh discredit the groups by being part of the groups and saying i mean and and this is still happening today i mean you, oh yeah we- i mean you know you you look at the amount of uh of uh, online trolls that have found out to be right-wing Trump supporters posing as Bernie supporters mm-hmm. saying things about Hillary to try and discredit Bernie's left camp. All all this yeah. stuff in America is still going on today. This idea of of one side posing as the other to, to try and discredit that side. I mean, um, what I was talking to you the other day about a, a documentary I remember um, about police, British police operations with Greenpeace mm. and um, going into fringe groups that were involved in environmental activists and people who were, you know, protesting runways. And these double agents, British policemen, would have sometimes decade-long relationships, children mm-hmm. with, with um, people who were in organisations even though they had a wife and family back at home. And, and uh, I mean, they say this has all stopped now, but, I mean, <laughs> they said it all stopped in 73 in the States. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, it does start... Your brain starts to whirl a little bit at yeah. kind of the power that programmes like COINTELPRO and CHAOS had. Yeah. Um, so the third programme, the one that's most interesting uh, to this case, was one that you guys have probably heard of uh, in some script genre, which was Project MKUltra which was uh, the CIA, again, Richard Helms, who started Operation Chaos, uh, allowing the government to experiment with LSD and mind-altering drugs on people within the general public in an attempt to see if they could be controlled using using mind control. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. We know that also... Which came from North Korea during the Korean War. I was going to say, yeah. So we yeah. know that this was starting uh, really with... with um, experiments on soldiers during the, who came back from the Korean War as yeah. prisoners of war. Yes. Um, and a lot of them spoke out um, saying, oh, we, what we've done is biological warfare over here and mm-hmm. it's dreadful. And they went, oh, don't... And they were holding these press conferences yeah. um, and Koreans were showing that 
uh, well, the Chinese government showing that um, footage back to America. And the way that the America kind of, you know, Uncle Sam explained it was saying, oh, no, they've been programmed through months of torture and sleep deprivation mm. and brainwashing. What we've got to do is unbrainwash them. Yeah. Um, and there was one guy who was apparently really, really, you know, really good at it, um, who was called Jolly West. Mm-hmm. Um, Jolly West, um, called that because of his size and the fact that he particularly enjoyed his job, yeah. was kind of the chief deprogrammer of these prisoners of war from Korea. And also, crucially, his middle name was Jolion. Oh, Jolion, yeah. <laughs> so that's probably more the reason everyone went Jolly. Yeah. All right, but he apparently also <laughs> fits his personality. Um, but yeah, he he was in charge of kind of this this so called deprogramming, mm-hmm. but used a load of LSD in order to do it. And so some people think that actually Jolly might have been like maybe prisoners of wars were telling you the truth because yeah. we know a lot of what they said was true, um, and he was kind of in charge of actually programming them through mind altering drugs yeah. um, and to- several forms of torture. Yeah. Um, and so this was t- taken through from MK Ultra into the Vietnam War as well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so MK Ultra, the program started in 1953. It was led by a guy called Dr. Sidney Gottlieb, um, who was a massive proponent of experimenting using mind-altering drugs. Um, yeah, had v- various different sinister nicknames within he, the CIA. He's a real proper high up spook isn't he yeah like when i think of any like when i hear his name i feel yeah. like a bit of a shudder oh no he's, he's terrifying he's he's like the scientist that works with the bond villain like that's yeah. who he is like uh but but also maybe the bond villain yeah <laughs> he, he he was um very high up in the cia and seemed to never get often you think about the cia and fbi being a separate you know entities it seemed Sidney Gottlieb was allowed to kind of move around yeah. a lot of different organisations within the government. Um, had jobs quite high up in private sector as well. I um, think you were saying he worked for a, uh, a major weapons manufacturer yeah, as well. Yeah, so uh, Lockheed, or Lockheed Martin as it's now known today. Um, yeah, Huge. massive private arms contractor. Um, uh, and so, yeah, was kind of around and in all these circles. And then he was... Uh, hired by Richard Helms to set up this MK Ultra program uh and uh made his merry way down to Hey Ashbury. Uh yeah um... uh, to and and started doing these um experiments. Um but yeah so in that was in the sixties. In the in nineteen fifty three when it first started, they uh, approached a guy called Frank Olson, um who was a CIA operative. Um and they supposedly uh, gave him a bit of LSD in Quantro to see what would happen. Um, he got he got wind of this, was planning on exposing it, didn't agree with this uh, way of... Uh, number one, didn't agree with being a guinea pig. Number two, didn't want to continue using this kind of test. I was going to say, he, he didn't enjoy the, the programme, but also he had issues with biological... The, yeah, the biological morality order. of it. The morality of it. Um, and then uh, he spoke up, said he was going to, uh, you know, leave the CIA... Um, and didn't want to be any part of it. And then nine days later, he <coughs> jumped <coughs> out of a yeah. uh, uh, nine-story window uh, uh, in a hotel in New York. Um, uh, very mysterious circumstances because he didn't. Uh, 
it's very much the way that he would have gone out of that window would have been very hard to have jumped from within a room there's no balcony so he would have had to have jumped yeah. from the inside of the room outside of it's, the it, window it was only the bottom half of the window that was broken so he would have had to have kind of like dived like a I swimmer say his son spoke about we watched a bit of a documentary which is mm. wonderfully uh, uh yeah uh, wormwood well. on netflix check it out it's really quite special as a piece of art but mm. um it has a lot of footage of his son uh yeah. um, frank holston's son talking about kind of the, the logistics of how this would have happened and he did describe him kind of almost swan diving diving out of the bottom half of a closed window yeah from nine stories high yeah is quite you'd have to be an acrobat to do that yeah and yeah i mean the momentum you'd have to get to even yeah. just crash through yourself and break wood wood paneling and glass mm. but anyway so yeah and and the story goes still to this day is that he he uh he jumped or fell jumped or fell um uh, but anyway he he was out of the way so they continued um but kind of moved a little bit more underground moved a little bit more secretive they started telling a lot of people they weren't doing it anymore but instead just moved down mm-hmm. to um california to san francisco uh and then they started doing something in, in hate ashbury called project midnight climax which i think is fantastic it's also the best cia name for a project yeah. ever yeah um, um so yeah project midnight climax was a uh part of this mk ultra experiment where they lured people uh young guys into uh what was supposedly a brothel yeah um and uh spiked them with lsd and watched what happened and they also trained i was reading some of the uh uh women that were there to Inter- interrogation and they're actually being interrogated by these prostitutes with just... people watching i um... mean the idea that you 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 take a john off the street into a hotel or you know uh, the room of a, of a brothel of a, um, and then spike their drinks on the way in have them have an lsd trip that they wouldn't bargain for yeah then watch them be tortured by a sex worker through a two-way window yeah like that is just it's madness to me but i promise you as david said at the beginning of the podcast this is absolutely true and has and, and has been admitted yes. by the government so the u.s government has admitted this in 75 yeah so in 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 1975 uh there was something called the the rockefeller commission it had a much longer official name but i don't yeah. remember what that was but uh, uh uh nelson rockefeller was the vice president under gerald ford gerald ford uh asked for there to be an official inquiry into these clandestine um uh potentially illegal operations that were carried out in the 50s and 60s by the cia and the fbi um it so this like is Ford when was a bit um kind of suspicious of the actions of the of his previous government well i mean i think if you're coming out of watergate you have got to be seen as being squeaky clean, haven't you? I don't think he had any other You want to choice. get all ghosts yeah, out of the es- machine. You know, especially what I think I said to you that I sort of had this little revelation of going, you know, surely Gerald Ford would have had to have been aware of some of the Watergate stuff if you were VP. Right. At the time, it seems mm. really odd that you wouldn't have been kind of privy to that kind of um, uh, information. Um, so uh, I think he absolutely came out and, and just wanted to distance himself from Nixon, from anything to Nixon's administration, which was all massively, hugely based around utilising the FBI and CIA for these covert operations. Uh, and and so therefore launched this commission. 
Uh, now, in 73, Richard Helms destroyed uh, 16,000 documents. documents related to these, to op- both Operation Chaos and MKUltra. So I get quite confused by this period because you've got a series of different operations, which we'll just kind of try and, I'll try and summarise. Yeah. You've got MKUltra, which has been running for a long time, uh, which is primarily CIA run and it's to do with military intelligence and LSD mm. being used as a brainwashing tool, right? Then you've got COINTELPRO, yeah. which is being run by the FBI. Mm-hmm. Now, this is all about kind of creating unrest in left-wing groups. Yeah. Um, it comes, you know, with the context of the Cold War, the Vietnam War, everyone anti- protesting with civil rights movement, yeah. anything um, that's kind of... Yeah, they... they uh actually um now again this isn't conspiracy this is all public knowledge that they were actually responsible for uh assassinating prominent members of the black panthers right uh framing mistrials planting evidence all that kind of stuff this is all going on and then uh lbj Mm -hmm. says to richard helms of the cia yeah i want you to run another project which is obviously not to do with the fbi but a similar motive uh, going into left-wing groups and finding other kind of bits of information. Yeah. How can we disrupt them? Yeah, so I think they found 300,000 uh, people that had been um, d- uh, detailed uh, oh. surveillance on and had been kept for, obviously... I mean, it's, it's, it's phenomenal when you think of the manpower. I can't actually imagine this happening today. I know we talked about the fact that a lot of it still does. Yeah. But I can't imagine any government, like civil servant in any nation, giving no. anyone the budgets that these operations had. Um, yeah, so so Operation Chaos is kind of CIA's answer to COINTELPRO. Yeah. Um, uh, but operating very much in, in similar areas. Um, but yeah, they had 20, 30 men yeah. uh, to each of these departments per area. Yeah. Um, and and so although was all, although all these things are separate, the reason why we're telling you about them is to give you an idea about what what was happening at this time at this place where Manson was in and around. Uh, MK Ultra was certainly there in Haight Ashbury, and uh, Richard Helms obviously responsible for overseeing both MK Ultra and Operation Chaos. But what it looks like, um, the the sort of illusions you can make is that Operation Chaos was about trying to disseminate through surveillance and, um, uh, yeah, and we say kind of planting false evidence, misinformation, kind of trying to hire uh, uh, um, communist defectors to, yeah. to, to pretend to be part of these groups and things like that. Uh, whereas MKUltra was about using LSD uh, to attempt to control and brainwash uh, people within that group to discredit them themselves so although the operations were separate the goal was still the same and the geography was the geography was the same and the uh um intended recipients of these things (laughs) was still the same it was all about discrediting the anti-war protesters the black panthers the hippies all these guys around at that time um uh the cia were trying to quash basically the entire left wing uh or radical left wing of of america at that time um so that's kind of overall the context of everything that's going on and everything that's converging to get to 
the point that we're going to move on to now, which is specifically uh, a uh, a book written by yeah. Tom O'Neill. Um, now, yeah, this is this is a book that um, Kevin, who requested uh, us talk about this, introduced us to. He said a good place to start is um, a book by Tom O'Neill called Chaos, um, and it is all about the CIA, um, MK Ultra. Uh, the Manson family. So um, yeah, uh, his official title is just Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the Sixties, which uh, is which is a great way of written answering... by uh, Tom O'Neill and uh, Dan Pippenbring. Yes, uh, Dan Pippenbring came on um, and helped make the the whole book. It's it's quite fascinating because if you're at home listening to this, um, you're probably thinking, where does the Manson family come into all of this? Why <laughs> yeah, why yeah. are you going here and, and spending so much time on it? But really, what links the two is this book. Um, yeah. And it's a lovely story, isn't it? Uh, Tom O'Neill, yeah. journalist. Yeah, uh, working for a um, kind of Hollywood... I mean, as, as he says himself, sort of writing these Hollywood puff pieces. Um, uh, the, the, there's a great... If, if you listen to this and want even more info, there's a great uh, three-hour uh, Joe Rogan podcast mm. that, that he's on. And, you know, and, um, uh, and, and on that and on, on, on other interviews that he's done, you know, he talks about, you know, before this, he was kind of asking Harrison Ford what it was like to yeah. film scenes in his next movie and things like that. And so very much like we are now totally not particularly interested in charles manson didn't know a great deal about him beforehand but in 1999 was asked by premiere magazine to write something for the 30th anniversary of yeah. the manson murders and uh he thought it was going to be a three-month uh jolly yeah uh around around los angeles um and it turned into a 20-year this is project which fascinating. is fascinating incredible um and he, 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 Tom O'Neill very much talks about himself as someone who, who doesn't count himself as a conspiracy theorist, no. never been tied up in this. But he found more and more information about the events surrounding the Manson murders and the people involved. Yeah, yeah it, it's, it's actually really frustrating because it it's put a kibosh on the idea that I had for this podcast when uh, Kev suggested it, mm. which was I thought it would be quite fun uh for me to try and take a counterpoint and yeah. debunk what tom o'neill comes up with but of course when you read what tom o'neill's come up with he's been so careful uh in the book to not put in anything that isn't completely um true and can be evidenced and that there's a paper trail for uh and that is out there in in the public domain so it's not a conspiracy theory in any way everything in that book is factually true which is one of the most which is the most incredible thing about it when 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 you see what he's uncovered, it, it's unbelievable that all this stuff was just out there. And yeah. uh, th- uh, thanks, Tom, for for getting it all together for he, us. He was it's, the it's one who, who, who uh, in his own words, could be bothered to to actually go through all the files mm-hmm. and, and link everything together. I'm just going to read a little uh, statement because he sums it up so beautifully. Um, Tom O'Neill says, I discovered things I thought impossible about the Manson murders and California in the 60s. Things that reek of duplicity and cover-up, plus the courts, police departments, and up and down the country. Plus, though I have to take a deep breath before I felt my, let myself say it, the CIA. <laughs> and so when you when you look at that, yeah. um, if that doesn't make you want to read his book, I would really, and you're interested in this stuff, I would really recommend uh, yeah. reading it. It's 480-page beast. Yeah. Um, um, I, I tell you what, actually, because... Um, uh, uh, um, it's it's been fascinating. We'll, we'll we'll put a link to the Amazon. That would be great in the in yeah. the bio. Um, and you can get an online version as well. Yeah, because um, it's, it's it's really something that needs to be read and needs to be out there. Yeah. 
Um, so this book uh, starts to dig around um, what Manson was like as a person. He's gonna he's gonna do a story on it, three month article. Yeah. Um, and yeah, much uh, the same as David and I have walked you through the kind of early stages of Manson's um, uh, biography. Uh, O'Neill uh, looks a lot at the records of Manson coming in and out of institutions, whether yeah. it's uh, disciplined school, disciplinary schools, or whether obviously eventually prison. And he notices um, that there's a character who kind of keeps popping up. I call it character because mm. we both have theatrical backgrounds. Yeah. But um, also they're fascinating. Um, and it and it's interesting because it's a name that does not appear. Um, so I've, I've uh, done a, a lot of research outside of the book and, and in and around lots of websites and things like that um, and other books. Uh, and this name doesn't seem to appear very much anywhere else, which is really yeah. interesting because given what Cam was about to tell you, you'd think that he would be, but um, he remains, yeah, quite distant from the story, which is bizarre. It sounds like a ghost, sounds like a made-up person, but a very much a real person by the name of Rich Roger Smith. Um, now, Roger Smith was Charles Manson's parole officer. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the guy, you know, if you don't know what a parole officer is, the guy, when you're in prison, you have to, you get out, but you have to report to your parole officer every now and again, make sure you've not done any crimes. They might give you advice on where to live or yeah. what, what job to get. They normally set you up with a job. They're just a parole officer. Um, Roger Smith worked um, at the Haight-Ashbury Clinic um, in order to do research. And the research that Roger Smith did seemed at very odds with the career of a parole officer. Yeah. Um, it's not clear that Roger Smith had any other clients, any other parolees um, at this time um, in 67. He devoted his life very much to running experiments out of the Haight-Ashbury Clinic, and the experiments he would conduct were largely based around the effects of LSD on hippies. Yeah. And what he would do was he would provide the hippies with free LSD um, and uh, in return they would give him his their time and uh, and he would also uh, give them free sexual health um, uh, help and uh, assistance with that at the actual clinic. So Roger Smith, really pivotal guy yeah. in not just being at the Haight-Ashbury Clinic at the same time Manson was, but possibly being the reason why Manson was there because he was Manson's parole officer before Manson had found the Haight-Ashbury. Yeah. So there's a real interesting link with the work of Roger Smith as a kind of scientist um, working through this LSD research, which also obviously has echoes of the MKUltra yeah. uh, operations we've just told you about. Um, so it's quite interesting. Roger Smith talks and has written quite extensively about the fact, uh, although he's only ever given a couple of interviews in his life, he's actually written uh, quite a few detailed accounts that often contradict each other about meeting Manson, meeting the girls, as he would refer to them as Manson's girls, um, and how they would frequent the place all the time. Yeah. Um, and often talk about uh, theories, ideologies, far out ideas, and the effects of LSD. And they would share the effects of LSD with yeah. uh, Roger Smith. Yeah. Um, they were also, there's another Smith here, which is a bit confusing, <laughs> but Roger also worked with another man called David. So we had Roger and David Smith, and they worked um, very and much. Jolly West is next door at this point. So what happens <laughs> is in '67, Jolly West, who we just mentioned, uh, related to MK Ultra, obviously working yeah. for si- Sydney Gottlieb. Um, yeah, I mean, if if Sydney Gottlieb is Mister MK Ultra, yeah. Jolly West is the number two. Yeah, 
Um, we know that he had a couple of agents um, that he trusted to run things. Yeah, yeah. So there was one, obviously, early, earlier on, uh, 15, uh, 10, 15 years before, mm. that worked with Frank Olson that was that was based up in New York. And it seemed like Jolly West was his sort of, yeah, West Coast kind of... Man of the South Man and the West. South, yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, so for, for kind of no apparent reason, Jolly West, uh, whilst working for the, uh, for the CIA... Um, decides to move into the office next door to Roger and David Smith. I mean... Uh, Johnny West, obviously, big military background at this point, decides to kind of grow his hair out a bit mm-hmm. and wear some jeans so he can fit in at the Haight-Ashbury Clinic because yeah. this is the epicentre of hippie culture, right? Yeah. Um, but no one really knows what Johnny West was working on. No. Because Johnny West never published any of his research details. Mm-hmm. Um, all that was clear was that we knew he'd done some research previously on rats mm-hmm. and he, sometimes he calls them rats and sometimes he calls them mice so don't be picky if you're you're doing your own research at home and say actually they were mice <laughs> so actually he contradicts himself um and he used to feed them lsd and speed and put them in different environments so closed environments isolated environments overcrowded environments study their behavior and then write about them now, the reason why a lot of this wasn't published um, uh, was because it it is pretty inconclusive. Um, and Tom O'Neill talks about this um, quite clearly. He says, that essentially, the experiments amount to giving a load of novice ice skaters um, a, a shed load of booze to see how ice skaters operate on ice when they're drunk. Well, they're also people who've never been on an ice rink before, so they're going to fall over either way. So there was kind of lots of pseudoscience going on at this time. David Smith was also involved in that, and Roger yeah. Smith definitely carrying out similar experiments on people uh, within hippie communes in this area. But there's no real report of what Jolly West was doing there or why. All no. we know is that he was funded uh, entirely and, and, and communicated with uh, Sidney Gottlieb. Sidney yeah. Gottlieb was his higher up at that yes. time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the Hate Ashbury Clinic now becomes just from a free health clinic with mm-hmm. kind of good ideals, um, come becomes a place where the CIA have one of their well, if not their top agent on MK Ultra, the yeah. guy most experienced with LSD brainwashing yeah. Yeah. in the world. Yeah, and remember, this is also absolutely geographically the same place as Midnight Climax was happening. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he's working next door to two other people who presumably aren't working for the CIA. They were funded by a couple of different operations, a couple of different organisations, um, one of which was called the FF. Um, the, uh, they call it the Free Foundation, but it actually had mm-hmm. a longer name. Um, uh, and and so funded by seemingly different organisations yeah. working on a different... And when they interviewed, uh, Tom interviewed uh, Richard and David and... Jolly, they all seem to kind of go, oh, well, you know, we didn't really know what we were up to. Just, you know, yeah, having just fun. two neighbours. And when asked, Jolly also just said, oh, I'm just soaking up the atmosphere. This is great. It's the 60s. I'm like, yeah. this doesn't sound like the attitude of someone who was, you know, very much war-torn kind of no. uh, patriotic right-winger. Yeah. And crucially, again, Roger Smith was Charles Munson's parole officer. I mean, really worth, really <laughs> worth remembering. So... It's not like it's happenstance that Manson suddenly walks into the Ashbury Clinic because he's interested in the hippie movement. Yeah. He's there because he knows Roger Smith as his yeah. parole officer. Yeah. What's also interesting is that during this period of time, 
he doesn't actually write a lot of parole reports for Manson. Sometimes no. they go for three or four months at a time. Yeah. At one point, actually, um, someone uh, at court um, up north sends a, an order for him because they haven't had a report from Roger Smith. And they're like, oh, God, your parolee Manson's mm-hmm. not reported in. God knows what he's doing now. He's got a terrible record. And Roger Smith goes, oh, di- oh sorry. And it just disappears. Now, O'Neill reference, cross-references this with the department at the time and says, why would this have happened? And no one in the parole profession, as it were, yeah. seems to be able to give an answer as to why this was allowed. There's suddenly a paper trail that runs out on Manson, despite the fact that Roger Smith is there with Manson, sometimes up to two or three times a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and also with all the Manson girls. So the all the, the girls we've mentioned so far, nicknames are otherwise Squeaky From, Sexy Sadie... Um, Katie mm-hmm. uh, had all they'd all gone to the clinic and yeah. met not only Roger and Roger Smith as his parole officer David Smith his uh, pseudo-scientific colleague who never yeah. completed his uh, his PhD or Johnny West who also never completed his research uh, and also was working for Sidney Gottlieb who yeah. was responsible for MK Ultra. yeah I mean there's there's some trail, but there's not a huge amount of evidence as to where exactly Charles Manson was getting all his LSD. Well, this is an from, interesting thing. We know that the CIA through MK Ultra were doing these experiments like Midnight Climax, going into left-wing um, organisations through Chaos, uh, Operation Chaos. But it's interesting when we know that they were doing experiments on specifically hippie communes. Yeah. Um, and looking at the effects on on these hippie communes and what it meant. Um, talk a little bit about the fact that th- the idea was that you could study the behaviour. And there was some people think that actually it was a government initiative to understand LSD. Because if you, if you're, you know, you're, 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 your sons and your daughters are not are your command in Dylan's yeah. words. Well... What is making them not at our command? Is it LSD? Right, let's go and do experiments on LSD so we understand it. So maybe it was coming from a standpoint of a war on yeah. drugs. Um, but yeah, engaging um, in hippie communes in order to try and understand what was making 60s hippies so anti-establishment, anti-war, uh, assuming anti-everything, yeah. that good old Uncle Sam had taught them it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can understand, again, with this fear and this yeah. almost kind of state, driven paranoia mm-hmm. um why some of these operations didn't take place did did take place i don't understand why they all thought oh let's put them all in the hate ashbury clinic together yeah and then not have them share any of their information yeah. or talk I mean, about it what why 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 was roger smith charles manson's parole officer it's, i mean i find it's, really difficult to get my head around it doesn't make any sense really it doesn't right. make any sense um, what's also interesting is we talked a little bit about um, Mother Mary, mm. uh, Mary Bruner, yeah. and how important she was in terms of the yeah, founding well, of the... being the first yeah, member of the Manson family, if you like. Um, and we also mentioned that she gave birth to Manson's first child. Valentine, yeah. Um, when we were Zozo, to... Zozo, Zazé, Zadfrak. Yeah, the, the number two name, got yeah. it. Um, <laughs> understandably. And we're talking about the bus that they had travelling up and down from... Um, from San Fran and kind of going to California. Well, there was a time where um, Mary and the girls and Manson were on the bus. Um, uh, actually, Manson wasn't on the bus. Sorry, they'd mm. gone out on a trip. I think they'd gone to to Walmart, which is where they right. used to pick up a lot of their food mm-hmm. um, from the bins. And Mary Bruner had Valentine on her, and they'd left her on the bus and got off. Left Valentine on the bus and got off to go and do things. Mm. And 
the someone found the baby in the bus and took it into custody. And Mabrina came back as this was going on and said, "No, oh, my baby, my baby." He said, "No, you, the the baby was ne- nearly dead. It was yeah. very green, very malnourished, hadn't been growing Jeez. properly." Um, so it was taken into custody, and uh, Mary Bruna tried desperately to get it back, mm. but couldn't because of child protection. So luckily, the baby was adopted for a period of about four months mm-hmm. by Roger Smith <laughs> and his wife. Right. So Manson's parole officer, who just happened to be also doing scientific research on the effects of drugs within within hippie communes, not for the CIA or FBI officially at all, by the way. So not a part of any of these operations. Mm-hmm. He's just doing his own scientific research on, on drugs and the effect on hippies. Yeah. By the Free Free Foundation. By the, I think it's called the Free Foundation. He then get, get, gets hold of Manson's baby and raises it. And Tom Enio asks Roger, you know, how long was it that you, that you looked after the kid? And he says, I can't remember exactly, but I knew it was long enough um, to have him circumcised. Right. She's quite interesting in terms of like the care and, and time. Mm. Uh, when asked about this, um, Roger Smith's wife said that she didn't go along with any of it. The only reason her signature was on the adoptive paper was because he asked her to, her husband. So she didn't really like the whole Manson idea, apparently. Right. Um, so very, very, very weird um, kind of set of coincidences. But obviously we don't really believe in coincidences because we're not conspiracy theorists mm. and neither is, neither is Tom O'Neill. We're just asking, why wasn't that relationship ever talked about and why yeah. hasn't it come to light? Um, it's also worth bearing in mind, um, there was another guy uh, who joined Roger, David um, and, and Jolly, uh, although predominantly Roger and David, called Alan. Um, and Alan was also a kind of semi-pseudoscientist mm. interested in, you know, doing a bit of research. And he went and lived with the Mansons uh, for three months <laughs> and said he got quite indoctrinated into the whole mm-hmm. idea. And they said, are you, why are you going? Are you there for research? And he said, no, I kind of get it, man. I kind of get this whole hippie thing. Mm. He took a lot of drugs. He had sex with a lot of the women there. Um, and then he came back and Roger and David Smith just went, oh, well, Alan, we all knew that you really liked that. You know, you got you got in too deep kind of thing. Yeah. None of this is reported. What's also interesting is that Roger and David and Alan were never, ever called as witnesses I mean, when it comes to the, the yeah. Manson trial. Mm-hmm. I find that absolutely grotesque. Yeah. That these people who 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 were officially in government bodies, uh, Johnny West, um, obviously in a separate department, but the same building, the same yeah. like sharing office space. Mm-hmm. Um, why why were Roger and David not not asked asked to to go to the trial? O'Neill asked them why not, and they said, "I don't know. You know, I mm-hmm. guess we weren't anything to do with the murders, and you know, it was just a misfortune." You know, just someone some guy we used to know. Well, I think that leads us nicely on to the kind of biggest crux of O'Neill's book, which is Vince Bugliosi. And yeah. Vince Bugliosi didn't call them to the trial, we, we can assume, because it would have muddied his theory that he was trying to propagate because he wanted to get a book deal, right? This is this is well, what yeah. we're kind of it's led really, to believe. It's interesting. We we, we meet Vince Bugliosi, Bugliosi in the first opening prologue. Mm-hmm. Um, opening page of the prologue 
and he he really is someone I, I have to refer to as a, as a character. Oh yeah, um, he's a huge personality. I mean, co- shifting so much between being terrifyingly aggressive mm. and threatening Tom O'Neill with violence to then trying to get him to write the the forward for for his his book and yeah. it's or you put a quote on his book or something. Like, it's really weird. There's there's an interesting it's bit like about what's the, yeah. uh, uh, what's that? Uh, I, can't, I don't know if Simpsons or Family Guy, or, but there's a very funny thing where they do about the seven stages of grief. I think the Simpsons and Homer a, goes yeah. through it really quickly. Yeah. It feels like that. It feels yeah. like he's going from angry to bargaining yeah. to trying like yeah. anything possible to try and not get uh, stop Tom O'Neill kind of going down this path, which is interesting and uh, a common reoccurrence in the book is him asking questions and at a certain point almost everyone he talks to suddenly starts threatening that, that they're going to kill him or he yeah. was talking about a bit in the book that he left out where he was with someone and they said uh, I'm gonna I'll slit your throat from ear to ear if you don't yeah uh, stop talking that is so, weird so once Tom O'Neill made this connection between Hate Ashbury Clinic Richard and David Smith and Jolly West uh, which obviously links into the MK Ultra Operation Chaos and the COINTEL programs that the FBI are running um, he starts to ask Vince, Vince Bugliosi about this and gets a very, uh, very interesting, as Davis described, reaction. In order to know a little bit about Vince Bugliosi's character, it's worth um, looking at a story about him when he was younger. Um, and actually, I think uh, Joe Rogan uh, has Tom tell the story on yeah. the interview. But it's detailed in the book as well. Vince um, is a fairly young man. Even at the time of the trial, he was actually a couple of months younger than Manson. So 33, 32. Um, when he was younger than that, he had also been rather successful. He'd worked on the JFK assassination and the prosecution of Lee Harvey Oswald. Mm-hmm. Um, so really kind of shooting to fame as a lawyer uh, and as a DA. Um, but also quite paranoid. So paranoid, it wasn't just legal based. It was actually... He, he, he got it into his head that his wife had had an affair with the milkman. Now, I'm talking about the literal milkman, the mm-hmm. man who delivered his milk. And he, his wife was like six months pregnant or something. And he said, oh, I think, I think it's the milkman. So she said, no, I haven't. So he asked the milkman and he said, no, we, I just deliver the milk. I've got a family of my own. And he didn't believe him. So he just kept threatening them to the point where the milkman, he, what he actually did is he, he got a PI to go and trace where the milkman's kids went to school, found the daughter, personally went to and abducted the daughter from school. Vince Bugliosi himself abducted mm-hmm. the daughter from school, took her to a toy shop, got her, bought her loads of toys, and then drove up and dropped her back home again. Yeah. Um, and threatened the wife of the milkman, yeah. said that this is going on. Now, obviously, this is all in his head. The milkman actually sued Bugliosi, yeah. who then settled out of court. It will... Well, this is interesting. He claimed that it was because uh, he knew that the milkman had stolen three hundred dollars, <laughs> right, from their home. Yeah. But the problem was that this was happening well over three years after the fact, <laughs> which uh, which is long. It's only a three year statute of limitations on robbery under a certain amount in America. So people were saying, "You're a prosecuting lawyer. You'd absolutely know that even if." He was proved to have stolen. You couldn't prosecute him because you passed the statute of limitations. His so it was a really bad lie. Seems really limited. Yeah. yeah. For someone who obviously is is yeah. high functioning and very mm. intelligent. Um. So this is who Vince Bugliosi is, right? And 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 Vince Bugliosi is given 
the case, the Manson murder case, as the lead prosecutor for the DA's office in California. Which is and a it, weird thing. It is a weird thing because at that point, the DA, the chief DA, was a guy called Buck Compton. Yeah, uh, great name. Um, and I'm going to talk about Buck Compton a bit later on. Um, but but it, it's it's something that we're going to come back to. It's weird that Buck Compton wasn't prosecuting this and gave it to Bugliosi. Highest profile case in yeah. well, recent history yeah. at that point. Um, the murder of Hollywood's darling and several others by this, uh, you know, mysterious... You know, they don't know. Well, they yeah. don't know who it is, but it looks cultish and it might be blamed on the back planters and they're not sure. So they give this case to Bugliosi. So Bugliosi's case, and again, we'll refer to the case as the helter-skelter theory, remember, is that Manson was getting messages from the Beatles through the White Album that there was going to be an apocalyptic war between blacks and whites, uh, and it was backed up by Book of Revelation theories about how the world was going to end and then Manson was going to come out of the desert with his family. Uh, and in order to trigger this race war, that's why he committed the Tate murders and the LaBianca murders. Yeah. So that theory was what they settled on. Yeah. Unfortunately, that theory wouldn't be supported by Manson having a long-standing relationship with Roger Smith as a parole officer, yeah. uh, a long-standing relationship with the Haight-Ashbury Clinic overall, uh, through drug research, um, getting free medical and health care, STI treatment, pregnancy treatment, and also having recruited one of their researchers, uh, Alan, um, I can't remember his second name, as a... a, a as a member of the Manson family. Why was none of that included? Well, the question really, uh, I suppose, lies with Vince Bugliosi saying, well, if if we're going to rest the prosecution on the case of Alter Skelter theory, then none of that's important or relevant. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting, because surely, if you knew that they were taking loads of drugs and you knew where they were getting the drugs from, you could have gone through the records and had loads of amazing witnesses to back up that this was what was happening. But he chose not to. And as yeah. a result, very nearly lost the case. Um, and it wasn't until uh, a very interesting uh, change of tune from Susan Atkins, who, uh, remember, is, is kind of, at this point, kind of Manson's right-hand woman, really, mm -hmm. um, who actually ends up doing a plea deal, plea bargain, um, and changes her story and 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 tells exactly the helter skelter theory. Uh, yeah. That she then goes back on once Vince Bugliosi says he lied about the plea deal, which is also illegal. Yeah. Um. Um. And also, this was all uh, 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 administered and obtained this confession through jail um, by a, a journalist who actually was kind of doing a lot of work with the CIA. Yeah. Um, and I say kind of, I mean, he was, but freelance. Mm -hmm. um, and he'd done a lot of the, the, the JFK thing as well and worked with Vince before. And he yeah. went into the county jail. Um, I think Kern County, it's in Kern County, um, to interview Susan Atkins officially as a psychologist to do an assessment on her. So right. that was an illegally obtained yeah. piece of evidence that then should have been thrown out once the plea bargain was ignored. And yet that is literally the reason why Manson and, and the family are in jail. Yeah. That's the one account that actually puts him in, in jail. Mm -hmm. So it seems a really odd route. The amount of work Bugliosi has to do in order to make sure the Helter Skelter theory is used as the prosecution, rather than going to anyone at the Ashbury Clinic, and particularly Roger Smith, who seems at this point the guy who's known Manson the longest in his whole life. Like yeah. three solid years of 
the Hey Ashbury Clinic, or two solid years of the Hey Ashbury Clinic, and and the his criminal history from when he was a teenager. Yeah. It's about ten year relationship. He yeah. adopted and looked after his <laughs> child. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nah, he's not important. That of him on the witness stand. So again, O'Neill doesn't offer a theory, but he does ask the question, why would Vince do this? Mm-hmm. And he asks that question to Vince Bugliosi. Yeah. Um, and there's this great kind of almost scene, because I see it in my head, mm. where he goes to Vince's house uh, and Vince lays out a tape recorder and Tom puts out a tape recorder and they both, both press record at the same time uh, so that they can you know, be on the record or off the record. Yeah. Um, and Vince, yeah, at some point is going, oh, I'm so glad you asked me that, Tom. That's amazing. And then in the next sentence is like, what are you asking about the CIA? You know, I'll have you killed. I've got some really important... You're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. Really paranoid guy. Yeah, and that moment when he um, he's leaving, uh, O'Neill's leaving, and he says, you know, by the way, um, if you want me to put a quote on the book, yeah, yeah. Uh, it'll help you sell loads so of it. But this isn't a quid pro quo thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he invites O'Neill back, and they do another interview at the house. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it is off the record. Yeah. But it's included in the book. There's an interesting uh, thing you were telling me about how that came about. Yeah, we is um I believe again this is this is from the the Rogan podcast. Um I, I might have got the wrong end of the stick, but I believe what O'Neill was saying is that there was uh, a lawsuit by Bugliosi's estate that was yeah. trying to claim that it was off the record. Yeah. Um and he went, well, Number one, no, it it's not everything he said was on the record. But two, even if it was off the record, the minute this becomes a court case and that is evidence, that is on an official record, which means I can still use it. So it's like, it's, you're just going to waste, you're absolutely wasting your time doing this. It's bizarre. And also, do you know how much the lawsuit was for? I can't remember. I think it was quite specific. It was a hundred million dollars. <laughs> right? <laughs> Which is, by any stretch of the imagination, is never going to get awarded to a journalist from Premier Magazine, who at this point hasn't published anything. Yeah. Um, Yeah, very, very, very bizarre. Um, So that's a kind of a big, big question as to why is the helter-skelter theory the one that we all uh, remember and, and go with when all this other information was there? And I think the question is kind of something you alluded to earlier, is that Vince Budiosi made his money from the sales of the book, Helter Skelter, yeah. which was all about the Manson trials. But the book is very unreliable and yeah. uh, and has big swathes of information that's very vague and very and misses quite a lot, Yeah, um, which is kind of very frustrating. So as well as um, extensive interviews with Vince Budiosi, mm-hmm. O'Neill also ends up getting in touch with Dennis Wilson, yep. Terry Melcher, uh, the family, friends and family of anyone around the Cielo Drive house. Yeah. And it's Sharon Tate's relatives, LaBianca's relatives. Um, and he really tries to kind of get to the root of what other people thought of Manson. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that you end up with a mixture in reactions. And I think... He talks De- to C- uh, Candice Bergen as well, doesn't he? Who... Terry Melcher was married to at the, at the time. Bergen they and lived in, as I think we said, they lived in the house that became the murder house. The, the, yeah, the, what is now known on Hollywood tours as the murder house, um, rather macabrely. Um, but yeah, he, he goes to Terry Melcher and says, hey, you were the producer for the Beach Boys. You used to live in Cielo Drive. Bugliosi said that you, you know, knew him and, and uh, that essentially he might have been coming to your house and choosing you as the victim 
uh, because one, you were a white American establishment, which would would support the whole triggering mm-hmm. triggering a race war theory, but also you didn't give him a record deal that he wanted, right? Um, and he says, "Oh well, I never really knew Manson that much. We met a few times. He, I heard him play. He was dreadful. That was yeah. the end of it." Now we know that's not true. No, um, not least because Melcher and Dennis Wilson were part of the penetrators and had spent yeah. loads of time at Wilson's house whilst Manson was living there with the family for three months. But also Terry Melcher had gone to the Spahn Ranch yeah. after the death of Sharon Tate. Yes. He never admits this, but we know he was there because the amount of witnesses mm. don't just come from the uh, 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 Manson family, but they also come from his partner, Candy Spurgeon. Yeah. Candice Bergen um, has a very short interview with O'Neill, um, but O'Neill's kind of asking rather journalistically, you know, do you think that was true? And Candice Bergen says, if you don't, if you're going to question anything I say is true, we can stop this interview right now. If I say it, I'm only saying it because it's true. Oh, shut the fuck up. <laughs> like, yeah. God, she sounds like such a powerful woman. Yeah. Terry Melcher, um, you know, Tom O'Neill comes back to Terry and says, hey, I found his stuff. And Candy says that you knew Manson really well and that it was all pretty mm-hmm. screwed up kind of 60s LSD driven uh, uh, period. Um, and that you were kind of a bit more involved than than you say. And Terry Melcher says, like, this is absolutely not true. I'm going to throw your briefcase off the balcony. <laughs> I know people I could have you dealt with. And then also halfway through that same meeting, mm. then says, you know, actually, don't know why you're writing this Manson story. Really, this story is all about me. I'm much more interesting. Do you want to write my bi- biography? We could do a 50-50 split on it because I've got loads of stories. I can tell you loads about Frank Sinatra and uh, his mum. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, because have we said who Terry Mulcher's mother is? No. Yeah. So Terry Mulcher's mum's Doris Day. Doris Day. I can't remember. Um, Which is, yeah. I mean, a, a, a bizarre little... Yeah, and, and so Melcher kind of said that I, I come from this Hollywood family and Doris Day and, and Frank Sinatra must have had some kind of affair or nefarious thing. I mean, we know that there was yeah. stuff there now. Um, so so bargaining, much like Bugliosi was, um, and Bugliosi then gets in touch with O'Neill and says, hey, Terry Melcher's rung me. So, I mean, why is Terry Melcher still talking to Vince Bugliosi? There seems to be this real um, closing of ranks. Yeah. Um, and yeah, this happens a lot when O'Neill interviews pretty much anyone who was testifying or involved in the Manson murders. But anyone who didn't testify seems to be perplexed and confused as to why they were never called upon. Um, so uh, was there anything else that, that... I mean, there are loads of stories. Oh, we yeah. have to kind of read the book um, yeah, I to mean, get all I th- of them. I think, I think the thing that, that, that rings uh, more more than anything else for me in this book is this idea that Vince Bugliosi has managed to convince the whole world that this is fact it's not testimony it's it's like you read you know like the Wikipedia article yeah and it doesn't say you know uh the prosecution claimed it says Charles Manson did this because of this as if that is absolute straight fact um, because it was proved in a court of law to be true. So, you know, and that's generally in the... what You know, like we said, we both of us didn't know that huge amount about Manson, but one thing I certainly did know was that he'd, uh, that he'd instructed his followers to kill someone because he wanted to start a race war because of a Beatles song. Yeah. 
And that was like, in my head, that's what happened. And so what this book does, without going into conspiracy, without kind of, yeah, um, I think the most important thing to talk about with this book is that very deliberately, Tom O'Neill does not uh, posit a motive. Yeah, he doesn't. We, and that's, that's the thing it leaves you with. We don't know why Manson committed those murders, but we do know that it's very, very thin evidence that it was because of the yeah. White Album, because of an apocalyptic race war between blacks and whites, and because of the Book of Revelation. Well, that's yeah, that's that's what that's what O'Neill says in in all his interviews. You know, he says, "I'm not trying to tell you what did happen. All I'm trying to do is show you that it didn't happen the way we think it did." There's there's another character also mm. um, that I want to mention called Reeve Whitson. Re- yes, and- Reeve Whitson is Reeve Whitson is is around in that Hey Ashbury. He's around at the Hay Ashbury Clinic. Okay. He's also um, involved. I mean, his child and his wife were convinced that he was working for the CIA um, because he never told them what was going on. He eventually kind of moved. They stayed in Sweden, and he stayed. He's an international man of mystery, um, and used to have links with the Navy. Um, and Reeve is is mentioned as someone who spent a lot of time at the Manson uh, family commune at the Spahn Ranch, but also at Hay Ashbury. Uh, and in um, other various communes that they spent their time in, um, doing presumably a lot of research for whatever was going on. But the thing is, if you've got the CIA sending operatives to do experiments on disrupting left leftist groups, and mainly you know looking at those experiments in hippie communes, and then you've also got MK Ultra being run by Jolly West and Gottlieb who were also working in the Ashbury group, who were sharing office space with Roger and David Smith, who were then also doing experiments with LSD on those hippie communes. It's, it raises a lot of the questions of why why wasn't any of that documented? And I can't help but think back to those 16,000 documents that were shredded by Richard Helms prior to the Rockefeller yeah. um, investigation. Because um, actually one of the biggest kind of proponents of that investigation was Ted Kennedy, of course. Yeah. Brother of uh, JFK and uh, Bobby Kennedy. Um, and he asked specifically for these documents and they said, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. they're, they're missing, they're gone. Um, um, I, I also think a, a, a thing in the book um, that's quite a pivotal moment is when he's talking to, is it Stephen Kay, who was the co-prosecutor? Yeah. Vince Bugliosi, and he says if you've got what you've, you're you saying you've got, this sounds to me like that's enough to overturn yeah. Charles Manson's case if he was still alive. Yeah. Like, and it's... he said that that's, he said that I, I wasn't privy to these documents that you've yeah. now shown me. Yeah. What's he, interesting... said, he said, I I don't know what to believe now or something. Yeah. Like, it's amazing. Yeah. And this is, this was the co-prosecutor. This was the guy that was working with Vince Bugliosi on putting away Manson. So, so either, that's... either Steve Kay's, you know, telling the truth um, and he didn't know any about any of it and he's a terrible lawyer as well, or he did know and is trying to cover his own ass. But what's interesting is all the information that Tom O'Neill has found, these documents, these interviews, these names, uh, come from the uh, Los Angeles Sheriff's Office uh, files. Mm. He, he Just a big warehouse uh, of old files. And he just said he was, happened to be the first person to actually go through them all. It's crazy. He said he spent it? a summer there. Um, but it's interesting we talk about Los Angeles uh, Sheriff's Office rather than the LAPD because these two organisations seem to have a great ability of working on the same cases mm-hmm. and getting the same information lost at the same time. <laughs> and I find it very interesting when yeah. you think about um, 
operations uh, within the LAPD that were very much anti-communist. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in fact, we were watching a little bit of a series called Aquarius, which yeah. is all about LA in the 60s. And they have a, a team called uh, Red Squad who yeah. were in charge of getting rid of left uh, lefty uh, ideas. Yeah. Um, a lot of these people crossed over because well, a lot of policemen were ex-military from, from various wars. But also a lot of CIA guys crossed over, so a lot of people don't didn't know mm -hmm. who was operating out of the LASO as yeah. a spook, like Reeve Whitson, perhaps, yeah. or who was kind of actually a job in copper, um, like uh, like working at the LAPD. Reeve Whitson, by the way, uh, is all the more interesting not just as a as a general figure around that time, but in terms of specifically linking him to the to the the Tate murders, is that he went and visited the house and cielo drive yeah in between the murders taking place and the crime being reported which yeah is a very odd thing absolutely but we know he did it yeah and we also um know through uh through arrests of uh bobby beausoleil um mm -hmm. and tex watson the previous crimes and things that were committed and messages that were given to and from manson um that they were kind of let off from crimes and released from crimes when yeah. Manson was involved, much in the same way that every time Manson committed a crime between 67 and 69, yeah. Roger Smith signed a document and he never got charged or never processed. Got, he was yeah. always released. Yeah, always released. And there is a, there's a weird thing, isn't there, about the fact of this refusal to lump the Bobby Beausoleil, Gary Hinman murder in mm -hmm. with the Tate Labianca ones and acting as if those are two completely different then, murders when they're both uh, committed by the Ransom why family. Were they why were they uh, investigated by separate investigation teams? Yeah. Like... And the Labianca murders at first when they happened the day mm. after with the word pig written on the wall, very kind of same brutality, they were dismissed as a copycat crime yeah. rather than a serial murder. Yeah. And there was a real reluctance from the LAPD's part and the DA's office yeah. to actually pursue the LaBianca murder with the same uh, yeah. uh, veracity as the Tate murders. Yeah. And I think that really is one of the reasons why it took them four months to go from, yeah. oh, there's been a Manson murder to, oh, the, sorry, the, the Sharon, Sharon Tate's been murdered and, and actually bringing in Manson. Like yeah. Four months thought, is I thought a it was only time. a month. I thought it was August to September, wasn't it? Oh, was it four months until the actual trial? Maybe? I think it was four months until the trial. But, but yeah, it was, it was, went, it was yeah. about a month before. I think before. you're probably right, sorry. Yeah. yeah, it was about a month before um, they decided who had done it. Who, which which is, is very slow. Bizarre. And and yeah, like we say, this idea that they, they were adamant that they weren't going to bring the Hinman thing in when yeah. it was so clearly all tied up in the set. But yeah, so lots of, lots of open questions. Do you, obviously... O'Neill's not putting forward a theory and a motive, mm -hmm. but do you have what have an idea in your head of what you think happened? Well, it's funny you should say that, Callum. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I know I do. Okay, okay. Strap yourselves in, boys and girls. Right, he's just got a Bible's worth of notes out. So, after uh, um, <laughs> after seeing what Tom O'Neill had written and realizing that I couldn't do my original. Uh, idea for this podcast which was debunking it because literally everything Tom O'Neill's put in is absolutely true um, it makes it quite a dry read actually of how factual it is like he backs yeah. up everything with a yeah. paper with a document um, but but still I think written um, brilliantly yeah um, no, it's compelling um, and uh, so I had to change tack a little bit and thought well what can I do to bring something to this table uh, 
sadly, you know, one of the two of us still has a job. So <laughs> I couldn't spend three weeks reading Tom O'Neill's entire book. So I've only managed to read bits <laughs> and pieces of it. So I thought, what? Uh, Callum's done all this wonderful research, read the whole book. What can I bring to the table? I decided to become, for three weeks, a private eye. And I have... Uh, and the hat looks really good on <laughs> I have tumbled down the longest, darkest rabbit hole. And I have discovered something. So we were watching a documentary uh, on YouTube about Manson. And they showed a picture of one of the Manson family, one of the girls, holding up a, a uh, newspaper. And with the main thing being Manson. And I just noticed at the top of the newspaper was a different story about a guy called Sirhan Sirhan being sentenced. And I thought, why does that name ring a bell? So I looked him up. And of course, for those of you who don't know, Sirhan Sirhan was a Jordanian descent from Palestine, Palestinian immigrant who uh, was convicted of murdering uh, Senator Bobby Kennedy. Um, New York senator who was running for the Democratic nomination for president in 1968, the year previous. And very well. Yes. So, I started looking, just out of my own interest, quite a bit into Sirhan Sirhan. And... It's a great name again. It is, it is. Uh, And the Bobby Kennedy uh, murder. Now, some very interesting things uh, were uncovered in my research for this. Sirhan Sirhan and Charles Manson first of all went to the same high school, about 10 years apart, but same high school, so relatively in the same area. Again, that geography just brings us back to the same place. The geography brings us back to the same place. They both were followers followers of linked occultist groups. So you had Charles Manson and the Process Church at the same time, literally exactly the same time, like the same year, 67. Sirhan Sirhan becomes involved in the Rosicrucians or the, the Rosy Cross, the Order of the Rosy Cross, uh, which were an occultist group. Uh, both of these occultist groups were uh, very heavily influenced and and had links to Alistair Crowley, Anton LaVey, the Church of Satan. They were uh, inspired by this same thing. Yeah, and those two groups were interlinked and Sihan Sihan is known to have been involved with both of them, as is Charles Manson, at the same time. Um, Sharon Tate. Yeah. Sharon Tate was a fundraiser as was Abigail Folger for Bobby Kennedy's campaign. Bobby Kennedy had dinner with Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski the night before I mean, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated by Sirhan Sirhan. Why, do, why don't we know that? It was the same detectives that worked on both cases. It was the same coroner that looked at uh, both Sharon Tate and Bobby Kennedy. Um, it was... Uh, um, oh, I tell you. Do you know who did the psychological profiling of uh, Sirhan Sirhan once he was arrested? Was it Jolly West? It was Jolly West. Oh, right. Um, uh, I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, uh, Buck Compton, the DA that was meant to, that was meant to prosecute. Who you were talking about earlier. Yeah. He, he was the lead prosecutor in the Sirhan Sirhan case. Right. Um, so there are all these links. There was a guy called Ed Butler. Ed Butler... Um, was basically one of these agent provocateurs for Operation Chaos. Right. He first came to prominence because he was the person that that disseminated all this information about Lee Harvey Oswald being a communist. It had never been mentioned before. He put it, the propaganda out there. Solely right. him, Ed Butler. Um, he did uh, the same thing with Sirhan Sirhan about the anti-Israel propaganda. 
Mm. Like, like literally like arranging press conferences and releasing this stuff. Ed Butler, before the Mansons, released an article saying the Black Panthers killed Sharon Tate before any any evidence was released. I mean, the uh, this same guy that was an agent for how, of how would he even Kays. know that there was the word pig written on the wall before the evidence yeah. was released? Presumably because he had friends. He was friends with the DA, I suppose. Yeah. So, Ed Sanders, another Ed, Ed Sanders, uh, author who has written a couple of books, he wrote the first book on the Manson case called The Family, and this came out even before the trial, before Helter Skelter came out, actually. Might, yeah, it might not have been before the trial, but it was certainly before Helter Skelter. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, it would have had, you could have written it a month. But yeah, yeah. It, it was basically the first book that came out. Um, and he wrote a follow up very recently uh, called Sharon Tate A Life. And in that book, he claims that Sirhan Sirhan was seen at several parties with Sharon Tate, one of which at the murder house, because Sharon Tate was involved in uh, the Rosicrucians and in the uh, Process Church uh, and with Anton LaVey and with Alistair Crowley and with all these Satanists. She was quite heavily involved with that because of... Uh, the Polanski films that he'd done, like Rosemary's, Rosemary's Baby, Baby and, and all, that stuff. They, all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, so yeah. they were in that world. And there are several... This this is all comes from a private eye called, La, I think, Larry something. I've forgotten his name. Uh, um, there are a lot of names to remember, guys. Let me off yeah. this one. Uh, and he's working with um, uh, Ed Sanders researching his book. And he says he has loads of witnesses that say they saw Sirhan Sirhan at Sharon Tate House. So, so Ed Sanders puts forward a theory... This isn't the theory I ascribe to. Ed Sanders puts forward a theory that it was uh, the processed church of the final judgment, or, well, actually, I think in the book he just says a satanic cult, but you can read between the lines, right. probably that one, killed Bobby Kennedy. Right. And knew that, or, you know, um, indoctrinated Sirhan Sirhan into, doing into killing Bobby Kennedy. Knew that Sharon Tate knew something about it, and therefore got the Manson family who were also part of this church to kill Sharon Tate so that wouldn't get out. Right. That's the that's the theory Ed Sanders puts forward. Now I emailed Tom O'Neill, the writer of Fantastic. Chaos. And And he said, I love podcast Macabre. I listen to it every <laughs> every week. Um amazingly and, and really kindly he got back to me and I asked him what he thought about the Sirhan Sirhan stuff and Ed Sanders. And his response was uh thanks David Sanders Tate book with the RFK speculation was a money grab unfortunately this book was basically just a recycling of his far better The Family written even before Helter Skelter and also updated many times over the years like I said in the Joe Rogan podcast there's lots to look at with Sirhan but that stuff Ed wrote is entirely baseless best Tom Um, so so certainly in terms of the church thing but he is saying there's something to look at with Sirhan Sirhan and it's very odd that you've got someone who we only know, Sirhan Sirhan, because of being the murderer of Bobby Kennedy, also being at parties with Sharon Tate, who's the fundraiser for Bobby Kennedy, yeah. and Amy Folger, yeah. who is the fundraiser for Bobby Kennedy. Yeah, there's there's a lot of links with Kennedy and Tate and Sirhan Sirhan. Um, Truman Capote has an interview with Bobby Boussoulet. Um where um, they're talking about Sirhan Sirhan. It's during the In Cold Blood thing. Yeah. um, These names keep coming up together. Um, And what strikes me is they both have very similar, similar profiles, right? 
and very easily found together if they went to the same school if the CIA are looking at recruiting people if they look at high school records they'd look at um you know groups that you're involved with people in the occult would probably be more susceptible to doing LSD trials things like that mm -hmm. when you start looking at that it's not out of the realm of possibility for me to go towards something like what Ed Sanders was saying but you replace the occult church with the CIA so so right. where I am is wondering I'm not saying I believe this. I'm just wondering, looking at everything in front of me and all these links, is something along the lines of Sirhan Sirhan was a Manchurian candidate. Mm -hmm. um, oh, interesting fun fact. John Frankenheimer, the director of the Manchurian candidate, a film about someone being brainwashed by the CIA to kill a political uh, figure. Uh, figure, was also at the meal with Bobby Kennedy and Sharon Tate. Ah! <laughs> the night before we can even assassinate it's like so 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 if manchur if the manchurian candidate uh uh was 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 real and was sirhan sirhan uh instructed to kill bobby kennedy because he was promoting the left yeah. if this man is president all the decades of work de operation chaos uh cointel pro mk ultra all these operations have been for nothing because remember they've all been to discredit disseminate destroy the left wing of america right in particular the civil rights movement yeah um, which Bobby Kennedy Bobby at this Kennedy, time was making huge the, strides pr yeah pro probably the most important Caucasian politician for African Americans yeah. that they'd seen and Mexican Americans and uh, most uh, minorities minority ethnic groups in America at that time um, uh, it, it, it's, it, by the way incredible man. We, we we watched a four-part documentary again on netflix about bobby kennedy really recommend it. oh it was um, so good but he's just i just thought god america really didn't deserve him because he just came it's so sad because i think he really would have been you know i mean i think carter was great and didn't kind of doesn't get his dues and didn't get enough time to really shine but but certainly at that point i think you would have seen the most left-wing president yeah. america ever would have had he was just amazing someone who's, who's incredibly left-wing but because get, getting there because they understand their own privilege yeah. and wanting to know how to use it yeah is an incredibly rare thing i've never seen an american politician get up there and talk about how how if privilege is accumulative then yeah then min minoritization is just systematic yeah uh, or systemic and that, the yeah. fact that he was saying that mm -hmm. in the 60s yeah no one like no wonder the people think that he was killed by capitalists or right-wingers yeah and when you think about richard helms or or hoover or whoever is in charge of these you know organizations at the time they all very much were united in their hatred for civil rights movement and, yeah. and hatred of the left um uh oh incidentally jolly west also was the psychological profiler of uh jack uh, ruby jack ruby um who killed harvey oswald who assassinated supposedly uh jfk um so yeah so i think where i am is that maybe the cia uh, using mk ultra to instruct sirhan sirhan to assassinate bobby kennedy maybe sharon tate or maybe abigail folger knew about it um and the cia also having been keeping tabs on manson also using manson in these hate ashby programs maybe Mm -hmm. instructed him and the family to do it make it look like the black panthers yeah to discredit kill two birds with one stone discredit the black panthers get rid of sharon tate because she's about to blow the lid just as this guy is going to jail yeah so you um, might end up with a, a hippie versus blacks war 
which and I'm yeah. using those terms yeah. very and loosely. we'll get and we'll get Ed Butler to stop putting out the propaganda that it was a black that, that it was the Black Panther thing, and then people who and who... then something's gone wrong along the way. Yeah. Now, I also want to come to Squeaky From, who Squeak... you mentioned at the very beginning. Squeaky From being one of the very early members of the Manson family, the one that we said was too unhinged to go to uh, yeah, for sure. Manson to let to go to 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 kill. Because apparently she was too crazy for killing. Um, <laughs> too crazy for killing. The squeaky from story. Um, you should write it. And and uh, in 1975, she goes and uh, tries to assassinate with an unloaded gun, a gun that she gets off a former CIA engineer, a uh, government engineer that has been supplying all or a lot of the firearms to the Manson family right. eight years before gives Squeaky from a gun and she goes and attempts to assassinate Gerald Ford in the same year that he has announced that he wants the uh the Rockefeller commission commission oh my to have goodness. a look into stuff so that so you follow this along all the way um and the CIA the Mansons the Kennedys and the highest levels of American government are all very very linked and it becomes very very weird I, I I totally so that that's yeah. that's where I am. I don't know if that is the case, but what's interesting is 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 for me it doesn't feel like a wacky conspiracy theory. For me, what I've just posited feels like the most concrete reason for why any of it happened. Yeah, that I found because everything else, certainly the helter skelter theory, doesn't really make any sense, and I don't really think anything else feels. Why why would they do it? Why would they do it? This to me finally feels like some sort of tight connection that tightens up lots of weird loose ends that were all happening within about 18 months of each other. This is the thing, the tying up of loose ends. And when we were talking about conspiracy theories in the beginning, you you know, we were talking about how many people would have to know and it's too complicated and what, why that's so messy. You know, unless that kind of cancels out the risk, then what's the point? And I kind of agree with all of that. But reading this made me change my perception of why things happen the way they do and when i think of you know our own civil service or our or, or you know western governments in general what i see is i see it a lot at the moment you know staying on message this is what we're kind of trying to do and when things don't quite work the way they should mm -hmm. when that we're not quite going the way that you know politicians are predicting that we will or um the establishment is predicting that we will what what then happens is we'll try something different and often in this period of time in America in the 60s, every time the government tries to do something different, they get a reaction that they weren't prepared for. Yeah. And I think this is going back to what you're talking about because the world is moving 10 times faster than it ever has done before. Mm -hmm. Not just technologically, but culturally, musically, filmically, socially, politically. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and it feels like that's happening at a faster rate. And as a result, lots of little seemingly simple operations like well let's try and you know calm down any potential communists in hey ashbury part of la that's coupled with oh yeah and also my friend who's in the office next door um he says we should try and give them loads of lsd and uh, use something of our brainwashing techniques yeah and he says oh yeah actually my friend alan went and lived with them for three months he's really good friends with them yeah oh actually yeah i was his parole officer for years so i could so suddenly you've got this kind of series of little links that aren't really thought through yeah and i think this is a, an example of the establishment thinking they're kind of invincible and i think they almost proved themselves right 
um, by creating a series of mistakes that then mm-hmm. need a series of cover-ups. And that's very different to yeah. making one... If you look at it as, wow, that's a really intricate conspiracy theory that would have taken years of planning. Actually, no, mm-hmm. it's... It's not a conspiracy theory. It's a series of mistakes and cover-ups by yeah. inept people. Mm-hmm. It's not because of grandmaster plans. No. It's because of the hubris of people who think that they are above the law, above science, um, uh, uh, and and above the president, uh, above politics, above everything. And yeah. this is, for me, this is the person that I imagine Sidney Gottlieb to be. Yeah. So when you talk about linking this idea of Bobby Kennedy because of the links with Amy Folger and Sharon Tate as campaigners. Yeah. When you talk about linking uh, Jolly West, who I just think must have the dirtiest fingerprints in the whole country, (laughs) like what he has not been involved in is is easier to talk about. Interviewing Jack Ruby, uh, getting uh, access to Sirhan Sirhan and, and psychologically assessing them. He was the one who came up with the story that he can't remember anything. The idea that Sirhan Sirhan and Jack Ruby had the exact symptoms of the case studies that Jolly West had devoted his whole life in getting. Like, they gave the results that he'd been saying he could get from from LSD through MKUltra. They absolutely smack of MKUltra candidates, or Manchurian candidates, as it were. So for me, this whole thing has opened up a different way of looking at things as, as a series of mistakes. And because of the limitless amount of money you know, we talked uh, briefly about Jolly West um, famously uh, as part of a, a, a operation he gave a, some LSD to a, an elephant. Yeah. Um, and gave it a hundred times what you'd give a, a human, thinking, well, you'll need to give it more because it's an elephant. And the elephant died within five minutes. Yeah. And the university said, Jolly, we can't, we can't pay for this, and he went. Oh, don't worry. I'll yeah. uh, I'll get the I'll get my friends to pay for it. And Sidney Gottlieb paid for it. Yeah, he he, he was also involved in um uh coming in and, and um assessing uh Patty Hearst, William Randolph Hearst, the guy that Citizen Kane's based on. Right. Uh, his daughter, uh, in the sixties or seventies, was kidnapped, and when she came back, he was brought in and concluded that she'd been brainwashed. Right. And then I think a few weeks later she said no, she hadn't. But um, so yeah, so he's yeah, like you say, his fingerprints are on a lot of things. Um, and, and whether you at home believe that LSD brainwashing can happen or MKUltra yeah. is effective isn't really important because what what is important is that Jolly West believed it could happen, and yeah. Jolly West was in the right place at the right time with the ideal uh, test results, you know, uh, guinea pigs, I through the Manson family to try out these ideas. So I'm kind of I don't I'm not po- positing it as an idea, but I'm open to the idea mm-hmm. that Jolly West, through his mates Richard uh, and David Smith, and everyone else at the Hate Ashbury Clinic, um, using them as cover and the fact that he's a parole parole officer as cover, um, carried out experiments on the Manson family, and I think at least made Manson believe that he was working for the CIA or that he was important enough to them. So there's a really interesting. Uh, thing that I think Tom O'Neill brings up at the end of uh, his uh, it's called LA Live and he's he's doing a and a Yeah, it's, it's very good. And he talks about uh, reading an interview that Vince Bugliosi gave where that someone asked him outright do you think they all believed in the Helter Skelter theory, and that's what they did it. And he yeah. says, I believe the girls did, 
but I don't believe that Manson did. Which and is, and um, which is completely the opposite of the the prosecution. Yeah, and that's coming it. straight from Bugliosi. And and as Tommy says, he said he's unfortunately he managed to find that a bit too late. Mm. Uh, and uh, Bugliosi had well, first of all, he said he dies, then he says, "Well, he hasn't died, but he stopped talking to me at this point." <laughs> um, yeah. So he couldn't he couldn't go and uh, and and ask him that question. But you know, he said if there's one question. That he would have that, that he's just disappointed that he never got to ask. It's absolutely, you know, if that's not your theory, then what do you think happened? What do you think happened? Yeah. But it's it's very odd. Um but yeah, the people who were involved uh, on the prosecution of the Manson case were embroiled in the both Kennedy assassinations in yeah. various degrees, whether it's through Buck, the DA, whether it's through the coroner, uh, whether it's through Johnny West and MK Ultra and the CIA. Or, uh, or, or any of the many of the other avenues. We also know that when we talk about the '60s and we talk about the Manson murders, you cannot not talk about the way in which everyone was linked at those parties together. The yeah. si- the, the the six degrees of separation is, is ridiculous. Yeah. So. Um... <sighs> On that, just uh, just before we finish here, I wanted to uh, read out. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but because uh, it goes on and on. But um, in 2009, um, on a website oh, called HarmonyCentral.com, uh, a user called Rasputin1963 uh, wrote a comment called "Real Life Creepy Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon." Uh, and I need to take a big breath <clears throat> breath for this um, and. I will stop at some point, but um, I need to do a fair bit of it for you guys to get the idea. Without further ado, we begin this journey for no particular reason with the aforementioned Phil Hartman, who was a high school friend of Lynette Squeaky Fromm, who later became a disciple of Charlie Manson, a jailhouse correspondent of John Hinckley and the attempted assassin of President Gerald Ford, who was once a roommate of modelling entrepreneur Henry- Harry Conover, whose wife was the infamous Candy Jones, who was treated by CIA-linked hypnotist William Jennings Bryan, who also treated the purported Boston Strangler Albert DeSalvo, whose name was written repetitively through the diaries of Sirhan Sirhan, who was also treated by Brian, who served as the technical director on the Manchurian Candidate, who was directed by John Frankenheimer, uh, at whose beach house a dinner was held on June 5th, 1968, where attendees included Mama Cass Elliot, Roman Polanski, and Sharon Tate, who was killed just over a year later by followers of Charlie Manson, whose music was recorded by Doris Day's son, music producer Terry Melcher, who lived with girlfriend Candice Bergen at 1050 Cielo Drive the year before it became a slaughterhouse after being rented by Polanski, who initially was slated to pen the screenplay for Day of the Dolphin, which purported to tell the story of Dr. John Lilly, who was a friend of Timothy Leary, whose Mellon family-owned Millbrook estate was frequently visited by Dr. Max Feelgood Jacobson, who once treated Judy Garland and who served as the personal physician of John Kennedy, whose assassination prompted the shelving of the film The Manchurian Candidate by its star Frank Sinatra, who was a frequent companion of fellow Brat Packer Sammy Davis Jr., who was an acknowledged member of Anton LaVey's Church of Satan, from where Manson recruited killers Bobby Cupid Boussoulet and Susan Sexy Sadie Atkins, who confessed to her cellmates that she had stabbed a death act for Sharon Tate, who was inducted into witchcraft on the set of the Polanski-directed film The Fearless Vampire Killers by Alexander, the King of the Witches Saunders, who received training as a child from Alistair Crowley, whose followers included Anton LaVey fellow Church of Satan member Kenneth Anger, who was the roommate and probable lover of family member Bobby Boussoulet, who once appeared in an underground film titled Mondo Hollywood, which also featured hairdresser and Manson victim Jay Sebring, who was a former lover of Sharon Tate, who was a friend of wealthy widow named Charlene Caffritz, 
who played host to and filmed the exploits of Charlie and some of his girls, who also lived for a time with Beach Boy Dennis Wilson, who recorded a song penned by Charlie, who was an occasional member of the entourage of Mama Cass, who was listed as a defence witness for Charlie's trial but never called, as was her mama's and papa's bandmate John Phillips, who was close to Polanski, Tate, Melcher, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, Cass Elliott, and film producer Robert Evans, who was working with and very likely contracted the execution killing of Roy Radin, who was assistant with Michael Davinko, aka Mickey Davinko, aka Mickey Deans, who married just a few months before her untimely death, Wizard of Oz star Judy Garland, who as a teen was flooded with phone messages and telegrams by admirer Oscar Levant, whose dead body was found by Candice Bergen. And uh, I mean, it goes on and on. It went well done, well done. I, I think it it highlights beautifully why this period of time is so fascinating, and why someone like Kev would want, yeah. want us to talk about it. Um, it's incestuous. It's so incestuous. Hollywood and politics and CIA agents and occultists and drug dealers. So many drug dealers. But and musicians are all going to the same parties, going to the same events, spending all this time in, in the hot Californian sun. Something was bound, was bound to go um, wrong. Have you ever seen a film called Seeking a Friend for the End of the World? Uh, no. Uh, Steve Carell and Kira Knightley. And the film starts with this like uh, announcement on the news where it's like, oh, and the final effort to destroy the meteor hasn't worked. Uh, the world ends in two weeks and that's wow. it so the whole way through the film you know that the world's ending which is really interesting but it feels so basically every like you've got all these middle class people taking heroin at parties and right. right and that's sort of what the late 60s feels like because of this i keep going back to this idea of it being like the end of a end world of an, age, yeah. an end of an era that they knew and that that uh, and i don't know maybe again and, and any older listeners may, maybe it's just us having not experienced it looking back and and just kind of gleaning this from secondhand information and and what what you see in tv and films and things but 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 the, for me it really feels like that was a time where people didn't know what was on the horizon yeah. you didn't know if there was going to be a nuclear bomb that was going to wipe out america literally any day you didn't know that you know um uh you know vietnam was going to explode 10 times more you didn't know how if your loved ones were going to come back alive um, you you know you didn't know if you were going to OD from all these drugs that were going around. Conversely, I mean, you didn't know if if you know if you're a racist, it's a pretty bad time to be a racist in the middle of all this civil rights you yeah, know, happening. Yeah. Um, you know, so that that a lot of fear surrounding even even good even the good things that were yeah. happening. Yeah, um, was considered bad and scary things to a lot of other people. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. You're right. It's a it's a fascinating period of time. And I think it really is, uh, if, if you're at all interested in this, we'd have to be to still be listening. Um, <laughs> please do. Yeah, we'll put up the link. Yeah. Have a look at, at Tom O'Neill's book. Yeah. Because he's still being sued by so many people and he's done absolutely nothing wrong. No. Apart from shed light on a period of time that most uh, people in Hollywood from that era will not talk about. Yeah. He just seems like such a lovely, genuine guy as well in the interviews. Yeah, um, what, what a dude. Yeah, a real dude. Um, And yeah, once again, thank you, Tom. Number one for replying to our yeah to our uh, email and and also for just shedding light on this this amazing story. Um, it's yeah, it, oh, it feels like a bit of a weight off now. It really has been weeks of our life that we've been re- living in the world of Charlie Manson, which is is yeah. a long time. I just to, hope to I just hope there. that it's it's clear to you. I mean, we've left so much out from the book and and yeah. so much out from from other bits of our research, but yeah. I think we've tried to just give you this picture of who was where and why it's so bloody dodgy. Yeah. Um, and and uh, hopefully you've enjoyed enjoyed listening to that. Yeah, uh, I hope it was worth your fiver, Kev. Yeah, um, you uh, be. 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 again. 
and um yeah i guess i guess that's it uh Kelsey, i hope you guys have enjoyed it and we've certainly really enjoyed uh taking a bit of a departure i mean we love doing the film and tv stuff but um this was something a bit different and something really fun. Um, yeah, if, and if you do have something else uh, uh, along these lines, if it can be available w without a 480-page book being read, that would also <laughs> be quite handy. Just bear that in mind. Um, I know that we've got a couple of... I mean, we've got some great film and TV ones coming up, I think we mentioned before, but we've also got uh, uh, had a couple through uh, in the coming weeks that are a little bit different. We're doing one that's going to be us looking at our... Uh, our top five uh, intros and outros uh, from so songs, fun. which is really fun. Yeah, um, I've got a few ideas already. So that's going to be, again, a bit more of a discussion-based thing. Um, uh, and then also my dear mother has contributed and wants us to do a podcast all about the humour in the lyrics of Leonard Cohen. I mean, which is just so specific, but I love it, and I can't wait. Really, that's like um, a mastermind uh, specialist yeah. subject. <laughs> yeah. But also great, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've already got loads of ideas about about that. Um, yeah, something that no one ever talks about. Yeah, I mean his. I mean, I I I don't know if you know the song, but uh, "Democracy Is Coming to the USA" is <laughs> a great one and so full of satire and tongue in cheek humor. Uh, it's brilliant. Um, cool. Okay, well that's it then, guys. Uh, as always, you can find us on uh, Twitter. Get in touch with us at Macabre Podcaster. You can email us podcastermacabre at gmail .com. You can find us on Facebook, fb.me forward slash podcaster macabre. And of course, please do like, share and subscribe on everywhere you get your podcasts. We are on Apple, we are on Spotify, we're on Google Play, we are on Stitcher, we're on Overcast, we're on Pocket Casts. We're literally everywhere. So uh, do give us a listen, share us around and uh, do get in touch if you have £5. The Patreon's still up and running. Give us a challenge like today. Okay, so for now, I've been David Shoplin. And I've been Callum Hughes. And this has been Any Requests. Thank See you so much for listening. See you next time. Bye. Look out!